everybody. Welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host, as always. Thanks so much for being here with me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you cannot get to the Father unless you go through him. Today we're going to be exposing, once and for all, Mystery Babylon, who has put herself between man and Jesus for hundreds of years. And a lot of the episodes we've been talking about in the last two months or so have leading, been leading up to this point. So today I'm going to be talking about that in great detail. Make sure you have some popcorn <laughs> and a notebook. But ultimately, uh, we're going to be getting into some really deep things. So make sure you subscribe because I don't know how these platforms will handle these types of contents over time. And the best way to stay in touch and to receive ongoing content is to subscribe on my website. And you can do so simply by going to danceoflife.com. There's a little subscription there. I probably email once a week, sometimes twice a week. Nothing too crazy, but ultimately it's just the safest way to stay in touch. But today we are going to just jump right into it because we have a lot of material. So like I said, this will probably be a longer episode. Um, you know, watch it in parts if you have to, bookmark it, take notes. This is going to be a resource for you that by the end of this episode, you will absolutely for sure, without a doubt, 100% know who Mystery Babylon is. Now, if you're just joining us, you have some catching up to do, so make sure you do that. Uh, but ultimately, uh, this episode can stand alone because the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Now, the last seven episodes or so, we were consistently looking at a pattern, and that pattern is that Rome and the papacy and Catholicism as an institution are the power, the Antichrist power, the system that both Daniel, the prophet Daniel and John who wrote Revelation, that they warned us about. Daniel warned us about a little horn power that came out of the fourth beast, which we identified as Rome. So this little horn power came out of Rome, and we know that the papacy came out of Rome. And we know that John also continues history. Remember, Daniel gave the bigger picture. John continues history in talking about the little horn power, but he uses different imagery. He, he uses various beasts, he talks about the image of the beast. He talks about the beast getting wounded uh, and then coming back to power. And then he talks about this final beast that we looked at, which is the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17. We looked at la we looked at that last week. We looked at the geopolitical, historical aspects of Mystery Babylon and how the Roman Empire gave way to this religio-political union between church and state. And obviously that identifies Rome also, because one of the main identifying characteristics of Revelation 17 is that the woman sits on seven mountains. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the Vatican is the only place on earth where a woman, which is representative of a church, sits on seven hills. In fact, it's called the city of seven hills. The only other place that could be a contestant is Istanbul. Now, Istanbul is in Turkey, but it used to be Constantinople. The capital, the capital of the Byzantine Roman Empire. When, it was, when the Roman Empire in the West was starting to fail, Constantine moved everything to the East and it became the capital of Rome. But either way, Rome's capitals have always been with seven mountains or seven hills. So there are a lot of other things that we identified last episode. Again, if you are just joining, please go check that out and check out some of the previous episodes we talked about too because they will make their way into this one. But nevertheless, again, this is designed to stand on its own. And today we're going to be looking at the spiritual aspects of why John gives this entity, this system, 
such a drastic name, right? So the name is Mystery Babylon, Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth. I mean, that's a pretty crazy name, and that comes from Revelation 17.5. Mother of Abominations and Harlots of the Earth. So first and foremost, I want to say this. If you are Catholic, or if you have Catholic relatives or Catholic friends, this is not a bash on Catholic people. Okay, this is about a system that has set itself between man and God, which is basically taking the place of Christ. I don't believe that if somebody is a Catholic, they're not saved. Because ultimately, if we look throughout history, salvation has always been about having a trusting relationship with God. And I know plenty of people that have a trusting relationship with God. In the end, they defer to God's sovereignty. They, they love God, they want to please God, but at the same time, they are deceived. They're in various different religions, right? Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't witness the truth to them of the gospel so that they can receive the full, ru- the full love and experience of Christ that every one of his children deserves. And that's because Christ died for us. And his blood purchased this relationship that we can have with him. Now, of course, we don't deserve anything outside of that because we are children of wrath outside of Christ. But what I mean to say is that ultimately, everybody is called to worship Christ, to be in a relationship with him, his elect, and to be with him forever once eternity is ushered in. And that's going to be something we can't even imagine. But until then, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. We're being sanctified. And that's a very intimate relationship, which unfortunately... Religion takes the place of through different sacraments and works, and we're going to be getting into it today, but the point is this. Just because somebody is part of a religion like Catholicism doesn't mean automatically that they're not saved. Now, the Catholic religion has impeded a lot of people from hearing the gospel, and we'll get into that as well. And we've talked about that through the Abomination of Desolation episode through the daily. All these things pointed to the Roman Catholic system. Now, again, if this is the first time you're hearing these things, then I urge you to go back to previous episodes. There's a whole playlist of this on YouTube, especially. It allows you to organize it in a neat playlist. So go check it out there. If you're listening to this, then, you know, on podcasts, they also have a linear history of all these episodes. So go listen to those episodes because you're going to learn a lot and you're going to get a lot of detail about things that aren't really taught in school. They're not really taught in the mainstream because the mainstream is controlled by this system. So without further ado, let's get into this. We have so much to cover and I hope to blow your mind. I really do because it's blown my mind, especially to do this series. I knew some of these things, but ultimately to do the research and find the evidence that I'm going to share with you and the, and the particular details, it's been a real eye-opening experience, to put it mildly. But the first thing that we know is that this woman who is riding the beast, again, remember, woman is a symbol for the church. If it's a prostitute, it's an apostate church. It's a it's a, some sort of apostate group of believers. That was the same in the Old Testament. It's the same in the New Testament. And if she's riding a beast, especially a beast that's very reminiscent of the, the geopolitical, religio-political system that John saw with the papacy for 1260 years, if she's riding that beast, then this final vision that he saw is really indicative of a church-state union. It is the final 
iteration of this little horn power that Daniel saw. And again, Daniel saw the big picture. John is just filling it in with these various beasts and what's going to happen towards the very end, right? Which is the beast gets wounded. Then the second beast helps to build the image of the beast. We haven't gotten into that yet. We will very shortly in the next episode or two. Uh, We have a lot of things to cover. We have to talk about the second beast, which we haven't really. But nevertheless, it's this chronology of this little horn power and how it goes until the very end, basically through the mark of the beast and the return of Christ. And one of the things that John calls this woman is mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. I mean, this is a very grandiose title. And so we would think, okay, if if the Roman Catholic Church is called the Roman basically the mother of harlots and abominations. How is this justified, right? Well, I want to remind you of the episode we had on the art of war and the French Revolution. The Jesuits, who are a military wing of the Vatican, who are a propaganda, basically secret ops, special ops wing of the Vatican that were started to counter the Reformation. Because the Reformation did what? What did the Reformation do? All the reformers identified the papacy as the little horn power that Daniel talked about and as the beast that John talked about. So everybody realized that, wait a minute, we're under this Antichrist power. And that was a real problem because the Reformation was a grassroots movement. You can't counter a grassroots movement with more authoritarianism. You have to create a counter grassroots movement. You see how that works? And so that's how the Jesuits were created. And the Jesuits, we saw with the art of war and the French Revolution, that basically all of that was created by the Jesuits to begin this dialectic, which is a ping pong between two sides, left and right, up and down, dark versus light, red versus blue, Democrat, Republican, communism, nationalism. That all began with the French Revolution how the Jesuits began that. They began the secret societies like the Illuminati and all the other things that that led to. We know, of course, the Knights Templar is from the Crusades, and that's all a Catholic thing. And we're going to see other things. Again, there's a lot to talk about, and I can't fit it all in one episode because it's just simply too much. I mean, it's just crazy. But we will see how Islam was created by the Catholic Church to control the spread of true Christianity in Asia. Now, at the time, remember, Asia Minor was where Paul uh, evangelized. There was a lot of Christians in Palestine, a lot of Christians in Syria. All those countries were hardcore Christian. Now, what are they? Well, they're Muslim. That's by design. And we know that Muhammad was surrounded by Catholics and was sponsored by Catholics to begin, basically, his false religion. And look at where it is today and how much in common it has with Catholicism, believe it or not, which is very fascinating. Now, the Catholics also started the Charismatic Movement, which is all about these experiences and spiritual gifts. And of course, I don't believe spiritual gifts have ended, but ultimately the Charismatic Movement is designed to unify the churches through the experience rather than through doctrine. Think about this for a second. And you're going to see very clearly as we go into this episode and we see the blasphemous doctrines that the Catholic Church teaches, like transubstantiation. That's a doctrine. And they're very adamant about it. They're very adamant that Christ has to be sacrificed every Sunday. And you have to eat that body and blood of his 
in order to be saved. Now, if that's a doctrine, and if you reject that doctrine, which you should, how can you possibly unite over such blasphemy? You can't. But experiences are different. Everybody can have spiritual experiences. The Hindus have spiritual experiences. Judaism has mystical experiences. Every religion has had mystical experiences since the dawn of time. So you see what's happening here with this charismatic movement? And again, the Catholic Church began that. If you look into progressive Christianity, and we're going to look at, I'm going to document all of these things in future episodes. Right now, I'm just giving you a bird's eye view, because today is more about doctrine. But believe me when I say that progressive Christianity, the charismatic movement, new age, the new thought movement, Christian nationalism, all these things, if you look deep enough, the mother church is right there. And it's true. She is the mother of harlots and abominations on the earth. All the things that we can look at that are these major players in world thinking, which will ultimately play a part in bringing the world to worship the beast again, just as John saw the woman riding the beast, where the kings of the earth give their power to this woman. All of these things will play their part. Islam, believe it or not, will play its part in reuniting people back to the mother church. The Protestants are already calling to be reunited with the mother church. The line between church and state as a, as a separation in the United States is very blurred and it's going to disappear because of all this dark, satanic, in-your-face stuff. That's all by design, people. It is by design. Remember, dialectics are there to bring about a solution that you would have never asked for. You would have never asked for the unification of church and state, especially after the, the pilgrims came you know, and left that whole situation. The pilgrims were true Protestants, but within 100 years, America became a Freemason, secret society, Illuminati, Luciferian project. And we'll get into that in a future episode. But the point is this. The point is that she is the mother of, of abominations and harlots on the earth. And if you recall from the previous episode, there was a quote we looked at where the Vatican Church insists that she is the mother of churches. She will not be called sister. She will not endure that other churches are called sister churches, but rather their daughters, because she is the mother church. So that's a very proud title that she clings to. And of course, we know how many apostate churches and beliefs and prosperity gospel and all these things exist today. So she indeed is the mother of abominations on the earth. That title is very true. Now, in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, Daniel talks about this little horn power. And this is mirrored and expanded upon in Revelation 13 with the first beast that comes out of the sea. Both of these powers have a lot in common. First off, they rule for 1260 years, which the papacy did. But we see some things like blaspheming the name of God, magnifying itself against God and over God's people, making war with the saints, trying to wear them out, trotting truth to the ground, all kinds of things. These are all reflected in these different views of this Antichrist power. So let's look at some general history before we really dive into some specific teachings of the church. Well, we know that Sunday laws and Sunday persecution existed since the beginning. And when Constantine married church and state, which we looked at last episode, so look at, go look at that if you haven't been familiar with that or you've never heard of that, that's when all of this started. And many emperors after him followed in his footsteps until ultimately it gave rise to the papacy as the supreme leader of the church-state union. Now, that church-state union received a mortal wound politically, 
And so they had to change their tactics because the Reformation was causing a problem. And so they had to create this dialectic. They had to seem like they were defeated, which is what happened in the French Revolution. But then the mortal wound was healed politically 131 years later in 1929 with the Lateran Pact, where the papal authority was basically recognized again. And of course, it was always in power. But it's just, again, there's two sides of the same snake, man. You have the black and the white, the dark and the light, the white hats and the black hats. Everybody thinks the white hats are in control. Yeah, they are in control. But the white hats aren't the good guys. Who wears a white hat? Think about that one. So ultimately, we know there's Sunday laws. The, the, the Catholic Church has persecuted people throughout history, mandating worship on its own day. We know that there was an Inquisition. We know that there's crusades, persecution of Protestants like in the St. Bartholomew Massacre, and many others like it where thousands of people were killed. Honest, genuine Christians were killed because they did not want to obey this system. We know the Catholic Church banned the Bible. I mean, the Bible was in Latin, and you couldn't read it. You had to go to a priest to tell you what it said, and even the translation itself was you know, very sketchy, and things like this. We know the Pope gave out indulgences. He's actually still giving out indulgences. Believe it or not, I'm going to document that. Indulgences are basically your your sins are forgiven. And there were different kinds of indulgences. Some of them, some basically you, you know, if, if you get this particular type of indulgence, you could sin all you want. You're basically guaranteed to go to heaven. I mean, so there were a lot of things that the church did. And we know there are millions and millions of people that died from the various wars, like the Crusades, all the way up through the Bolshevik Revolution and how the Jesuits had their hand in that. Again, there's no greater body count than the Catholic Church, and people will not find that easily because obviously the history is written by people who are the winners, the ones in control. So you have to do some digging. But all these things from a general cursory level should raise your eyebrow just a little bit. Because as we go into these teachings, you will see without a shadow of a doubt that the Catholic Church is the Antichrist power on the earth. So let's start with the man himself, the Pope, the man of the hour. Well, we know that from the Abomination of Desolation episode, I talked about how one of the things that was common with all these visions of the little horn power is that it would throw truth to the ground. And Daniel says that basically they'll set up the abomination that makes desolation, which is basically making the sanctuary desolate. Now, again, in Daniel's time, he was an Old Testament Jew. He didn't understand the Trinity, grace, uh, sanctification by the Holy Spirit. All these things were revealed hundreds of years later after prophets and, again, through all the context through Jesus. However, when he received his vision, he received it in language and terms that he could at least grasp, like the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary, we know, was a picture for the plan of salvation through Christ. Again, there's there's several things in that that we looked at where they're symbolic of the plan of salvation. People entered only through one door. Christ said he's the door. There was a laver there where you would wash up. That was significant of, of basically baptism, which is basically being born again and being washed of your sins. The sanctuary in the desert was surrounded by these white linen cloths, which is basically Christ giving you a white uh, robe of righteousness that's not your righteousness, it's, it's his. And of course, you also had the sacrifice that was happening there, which is 
uh, pointing to the atoning sacrifice and work of Christ on the cross. And so you had the tabernacle where there was the bread of the presence. He, Christ said he's the bread of life. You had the candelabra, which was basically the always had to be kept on and to keep, keep a light in there. Jesus said he's the light of the world. You had the incense that was the prayer. And we know that in prophecy and vision, that's basically the prayers of the saints. And who is mediating the prayers? Where's well, Jesus? And then lastly, you had the, the final chamber, the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God dwelt. Now, this little detail right here is going to be very interesting because that was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And you weren't allowed to go, not even the high priest would be allowed to enter, only one time, one, one day per year. And even that has a whole specific thing that points to Christ. It's all very fascinating. But again, Jesus is our high priest. And the Ark of the Covenant, what did the Ark of the Covenant hold? Well, it held the Ten Commandments, which points to the law. The law testifies of Jesus. It had a, pre, a piece of manna. Who is the bread of life? Jesus. The law gives us a need for the Savior. The bread of life feeds us. And basically, he's the bread of life. We eat the bread of life spiritually. We'll talk about this in the transubstantiation section of this episode. It's not a literal thing. You're not eating Jesus' body and blood. It's supposed to be a spiritual reality where you are in communion with Christ. But you also had Aaron's staff that basically budded miraculously as God's uh, sign of favor in picking Aaron as the high priest. And so all these things pointed to Jesus. The staff pointed to resurrection. The, the law pointed to the need for a savior. The bread pointed to the bread of life. All these things pointed to Jesus. Every single part of the sanctuary was specifically instructed by God to point to Jesus and the plan of salvation. And now, with that in mind, which we covered very much in depth, with that in mind, if you, if you just have a general picture, to make the, the sanctuary desolate means actually to make the plan of salvation desolate. What does desolate mean? It means nobody's there. Nobody's going through the sanctuary the way they're supposed to. Nobody's entering through the door, so it's desolate. Now, of course, the sanctuary ceased to be in existence in AD 70, which, if you know your history, that's when the temple was destroyed. Now, Daniel's visions were like around 500 BC, give or take. And his vision that mentions this whole trotting of the sanctuary, the little horn power, the making desolate of the sanctuary, the abomination of desolation. The length of time for this vision was given as 2,300 years. Now, in the, in the text, it says days, but these are prophetic days. <clears throat> and we talked about why days in the vision mean years. There's a whole episode on that. It's called Daniel's 70 Weeks Prophecy. And that prophecy is tied to this period that is very long of 2,300 years. And it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that all the time periods mentioned in Daniel are supposed to be interpreted through days meaning years. So if so, what is the point where I'm going with all this? The point is this. It's not talking about the physical sanctuary because the sanctuary ceased to be a, a thing in AD 70. That was only six centuries after Daniel. But Daniel's vision was for 2,300 years that this sanctuary would be trotted underfoot. 
And so there's something greater here that it's talking about. It's not talking about a physical sanctuary. It's talking about the spiritual plan of salvation, which has been trotted by this power for, right, a long time. And that power is the Catholic Church. It ruled with an iron fist for 1,260 years and basically put itself in between man and God. And now we are living in this time before it will do so again through the woman riding the beast. We're living in this interim period where various deceptions and things are all forming into one general cohesive view. So we are in the transition period right now, and we will expose these things as we go on, but we're in the transition period. But it's important to understand that this is not talking about the physical sanctuary. It's talking about the plan of salvation. So with that in mind, now we can finally begin, because the Pope, who claims to be the high priest, Holy Father, the vicar of Christ, is the one who sits enthroned between the cherubim and basically has proclaimed himself to be God. If you remember the temple, all the apostles, including, well, and Jesus, all testify that the temple is a spiritual reality. The third temple was already rebuilt, and that was the temple that would never be destroyed, which is the church. doesn't mean an institution. It means the body of believers, people who have fellowship in Christ through a genuine relationship. Who has walked into that temple, into the body of believers, and proclaimed himself to be God? It's the Pope. It's the papacy. That's who the Antichrist power is. Now, we know in Matthew 23, verse 9, it says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So, don't call anybody your father. Who is Holy Father? Not just Father, but Holy Father. That is like God the Father. That's the title for the Pope. We also know the Pope is high priest, and Jesus is the high priest, and of course, vicar of Christ, which is basically in place of Christ. And we'll look at all of these things, but I want to pull up a couple of things. Let's let's get to it. This is a article, and again, all my sources are listed in the description of these episodes, so if you're listening to this and you can't see then, you know, you can always access the resources there. But this first one is Pope enthroned between the cherubim showing himself that he is God. We're not going to read too much of this. We're just going to look at pictures. And if you can Google this, if you're listening to it, you'll see plenty of these things. Basically, this is from uh, St. Paul's, the Basilica of St. Paul. And there's a giant throne in this basilica, golden throne, where there are two cherubim. And the Pope is sitting in between these cherubim. Now, look. You have to remember that all these people are occultists, okay? They, they know what they're doing. Everything is incredibly intentional. When I told you about the, the Ark of the Covenant and how it's, how is the Ark of the Covenant made? It's made with two cherubim, and, the, and in between the cherubim is when the presence of God, that's where the presence of God would sit, in the most holy place in the sanctuary, and the high priest could go in there one day out of the week, or one day out of the week, one day out of the year, and atone for sins, and basically he would commune with the presence of God. So you tell me, if you are sitting on a throne in between the cherubim, what statement are you making? And it's pretty clear. Now we also know that there is a tiara that the Pope wears, and he doesn't wear it anymore. They wore it for several centuries the papal tiara, 
The papal tiara is a crown that was worn by popes of the Catholic Church from as early as the 8th century to the mid-20th century. It was, la- it was last used by Pope Paul VI in 1963 and only at the beginning of his reign. The name tiara refers to the entire headpiece, including the various crowns, circlets, and diadems that have adorned it through the ages, while the three-tiered form that it took in the 14th century is called the tiara regnum, and, or the triple crown, and sometimes as the triple tiara. From 1143 to 1963, the papal tiara was solemnly placed on the Pope's head during a papal coronation. Again, why should a religious leader be coronated as king? Isn't that interesting? I think it's very interesting. But even more interesting is this. Revelation 19.12 says, his, this is the rider on a white horse. This is Christ and his return to the earth. His eyes are like a flaming fire and, his, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. Again, who wears the many diadems? It's Christ. But in this case, the Pope has tried to usurp Christ's authority by wearing many diadems. Now I want to look at one of Pope Gregory IX's decretals. These are official decrees. And this is going to be in Book 1, Chapter 3. And... You have, to go, you have to do a lot of digging for this because it's in Latin. And again, I put the source there where you can look at the archive and download it for yourself. But this is chapter three of book one in Pope Gregory the Ninth Decretals. And it's in Latin, so we're going to translate this because we want to see what it says. So you, chapter three is right at the beginning. It's a verse in Latin. And we're going to translate it. Let's see, Latin. Okay. What does it say? Potestas legem condetti et mutandi est penes vicarium Christi et quod de uno conextrum statuit. So it's all Latin, okay? What does it say? The power to establish and change the law belongs to the vicar of Christ. And what is established about one of the connected is extended to another connected abbot siculus. So, what does this say? Basically, that the Pope has the power to change the law. Now, we know, and we'll see later, that Daniel prophesied that the Antichrist power would change the times and the law. Now, we know all the kings who take over have their own calendar. They change the laws in some sense. So, obviously, this is not stating the obvious. It's stating something about God's law, that this little horn power would have the audacity to presume itself God, basically, that he can change the law and the times. And we will see exactly how that was fulfilled. But this is from a decree that was several centuries ago and what they believed. And you'll see more and more of these types of decrees as we go along. But I want to go to the next thing, which is Dom, oh gosh, this is a good one. Dominum Deum Nostrum Papam, Our Lord God the Pope. There's a lot, and again, all these resources I'm quoting, they have great clippings from various uh, publications, but you can see here, Dominum Nostrum Papa, Our Lord the Pope. And as we go down, this is from another clipping, another, uh, this is from the 1511 edition, Extravagantes Viginti Johannes Vigis Micundi, Basel, Switzerland. So again, these are just old documents that you can see. Again, they're in Latin. But you can see where it says the abbreviation, 
Our Lord God the Pope in Latin is Dominum Deum Nostrum Papam. It is abbreviated to DNM, D-E-U, N-R-M, Papa. So these are just like little abbreviations in the middle line and indicated by the red arrow. So you have this text in here that refers to the Pope as Our Lord God the Pope. Basically, totally the most blasphemous thing you can imagine. One of, one of the most blasphemous things, at least. Now, we know that the Pope also claimed to be God in other ways. So let's look at that. Okay, let's see where are we at. Does the Pope claim to be God? Mysterious quote regarding the Pope found. This may be one of the more common citations found on the web regarding papal claims, but until now it has been cloaked in dense obscurity. The original documents hidden from attempts at discovery by a garbled and incomplete reference. And here's the reference. The Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. And, and it's supposedly by Pope Pius V, quoted in Barclay, chapter 26, page 20, page 218, Citius Petrus Bertanus. And it goes on to say this. Well, a bit of detri- determined research has finally cracked this mystery, a major clue that should read Barclay, chapter 27, page 218, who cites Petrus Bertrandus. So this should be citing a person named Petrus Bertrandus. It didn't actually come from Pius V. But he is mentioned on page 219, not 218. So we're going to look at some of these mentionings. The author, William Barclay, who lived in the 16th century, was a Scottish Roman Catholic, a lawyer and a scholar who strongly opposed papal claims to temporal authority over the kings, which again, the papacy ruled, but not by its own power. It it had power without a military, which is just fascinating. And the quote is this from William Barclay, although I see some people seem to inept, so inept or rather insane as to attribute this omnipotence to the pontiff, so meaning they were attributing godlike qualities to the Pope, this argument nob- notably adds proof of his worldly vanity. So that's what William Barclay said. So obviously acknowledging something about the Pope being basically you know, claiming to be godlike or acting like godlike. Then, as evidence, there is a quote from the gloss by French canonist Petrus Bertrandus, which is what this is being cited for. For the last sentence of Unum Sanctum, which is another document, and the quote is this, Christ entrusted his office to the chief pontiff, but all power in heaven and in earth had been given to Christ. Therefore, the chief pontiff, who is his vicar, will have this power. All of this comes from this whole quote where, verse, I should say, where Christ says, on this rock I will build my church. And he's talking to Peter. Now, the Catholics will interpret this as the rock is Peter. But this is just very, very poor exegesis and interpretation. And ultimately, it's just twisting the Bible to suit the institutionalization of Christianity. Because first and foremost, Peter is dead. He's waiting resurrection just like everybody else. The rock throughout the Old Testament is always pointed to Christ in numerous ways. The rock that Moses struck in the desert, the rock that David calls the rock of his salvation, the rock that Daniel saw that that uh, destroys the statue, this, these empires basically, the, the coming of the, the second coming of Christ that destroys all the iterations of the empires. Christ is the rock. So why would Christ build his church on a dying, sinful human being? And of course, Peter is redeemed, 
but we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is not what that verse is. It's being taken out of context as the point. But all of this has led to this idea of the vicar of Christ, the person that's entrusted with the power of God on earth, which is just madness. But let's move on. So Pierre Bertrand in his gloss for Unum Sanctum had the boldness to add this, which is little removed from blasphemy, of course. Peter Bertrand's name appears at the end of his gloss on Unum Sanctum at the bottom of column 214. Pope Boniface the 8th in Unum Sanctum states, Therefore, of the one and only church, there is one body, one head, not two heads like a monster. Now, this is, if you remember my episode from the French Revolution and how the Jesuits basically staged that to create the dialectic and how there's dark and light and how there's two snakes of the same, two heads of the snake. It's a very ironic quote that comes from the Pope in this case, but this is a few hundred years before that. Anyway, moving on. That is Christ and the vicar of Christ, Peter and the successor of Peter. So basically, they're one and the same. Therefore, whoever resists this power thus ordained by God resists the ordinance of God. So if you resist the Pope, you are resisting God. Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Now, this was said by Pope Boniface VIII. And you can look this up. This is in the document called Unum Sanctum. And there's all the resources, again, that I've cited here. You can look them up yourself. They're saying not only that the Pope has the same duties and responsibilities that Christ has, but you cannot be saved unless you are subject to the Roman pontiff. Isn't that interesting? History is really interesting. Pope Pius V in his bull Regnus in Ecclesis, Ecclesis, deposing England's Queen Elizabeth in 1570, made that argument in the following claim. Again, this is in Latin, but the translation is this. He that reigneth on high, to whom is given all power in heaven and earth, has committed one holy Catholic and apostolic church, outside of which there is no salvation. To one alone upon earth, namely to Peter, the first of the apostles, and to Peter's successor, the Pope of Rome. To be by him governed in fullness of power. Him alone he has made ruler over all peoples and kingdoms. To pull up, destroy, scatter, disperse, plant, and build, so that he may preserve his faithful people, knit together with a girdle of charity, in the unity of the Spirit, and present them safe and spotless to their Savior. Man, this is basically total blasphemy. Now again, this is not against people who are Catholic today, because most people are very deceived. This is against the system that you're partaking in, that the world has partook in for many hundreds of years, that billions of people are a part of, most of them unaware of the history. But this is the history. These popes believe themselves to be God on earth and put themselves between God and man, which makes the sanctuary, meaning the true plan of salvation that is designed to bring people with an earnest heart into a relationship with Christ. Instead, they put themselves in between that so that unless you have a relationship with the Pope or the church, you cannot be saved. So this is more, there's no other power in history that has fulfilled the words of Daniel and John like the papacy. But moving on, I want to look up a article on, this is from Time Magazine, and I believe it's called The Hand of Terrorism, and it's it's about when Pope John Paul 
there was an assassination attempt on his life. But I, w- I want to just read a little commentary that, that this was documented in in uh, in a magazine. But that the Pope should actually be hit and wounded, that still had a unique capacity to stun. The outpouring of anger, outrage, and sympathy for the fallen pontiff was all but universal, far more extensive than it had been for Ronald Reagan six weeks before. Explained Amos Barak, a young Jewish businessman in Jerusalem, shooting presidents, that's politics. That I can understand. But shooting the Pope? It's like shooting God. Really? I don't think so, buddy. The Pope is not God, and it's not li- and he's not like God either. But of course, everybody will marvel after the beast. Now, I'm not refer- I'm not saying that this event that happened with John Paul is the wound, the mortal wound, because again, beasts are kingdoms and powers. Dispensationalism and futurism shifts people's attention to, you know, people, individuals, that kind of thing. It's not talking about that. Beasts are kingdoms and powers. The beast, which is the papacy, the first beast, did receive a mortal wound. It seemed like it received a mortal wound. And that's what the the text says, that it will seem mortally wounded. So when Napoleon arrested uh, the Pope and declared the papacy to an end, it seemed like the, the papacy received a mortal wound. But it didn't, as we know from history and as we know from that episode. But obviously people still marvel and wonder after the beast. And they see the Pope as God, which is very sad and very crazy that we're living in. This next resource is from a book called Crossing the Threshold of Hope. And it's one of, it's, it's by John Paul II. So it's, it's a book, it's some sort of, you know, resource. But basically, I want to look up this text. And it says, he says, every time... Christ exhorts us to have no fear. He has both God and man in mind. He means, do not be afraid of God, who according to philosophers is the transcendent absolute. Do not be afraid of God, but invoke him with me, our Father. Do not be afraid to say, Father, desire to be perfect just as he is, because he is perfect. So be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Gosh, all these things sound so reassuring, but then if if you look at the paragraph above that, this is how they get you. They give you truth. You have to have so much discernment to, to go through this stuff because it sounds so sweet to the ears. And I mean, it's just crazy, but let's read it. Returning to your question, I would like to recall the words of Christ together with my first words in St. Peter's Square. Be not afraid. Oh gosh, you know, it just warms your heart. Thank you so much, John Paul. Have no fear when people call me the vicar of Christ. When they say to me, Holy Father or your holiness, or use titles similar to these, which seemed even inimical to the gospel. Christ himself declared, Call no one on earth your father. You have but one father in heaven. Do not be called master. You have but one master, the Messiah. We just quoted that passage, and he's quoting it to you to build trust and to soften your your ears. These expressions, nevertheless, have evolved out of a long tradition, becoming part of a common usage. One must not be afraid of these words either. Oh, gosh. Okay. Thank you so much for that reassurance, Pope John Paul. Don't be afraid to call me Holy Father. Don't be afraid to call me the Vicar of Christ. Don't be afraid to call me your holiness. Are you freaking kidding me? This is the serpent through and through. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, it is much more than obvious. But this is how they do it. They use scripture. Remember, the devil knows the Bible better than you or me and anybody on earth. 
when Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, the devil tempted him with Scripture. The devil is using Scripture to basically justify his obedience to him in, in telling Jesus to turn the loaves into bread, in telling Jesus to jump off the mountain or the cliff or, or the house, wherever they went at a high altitude. I mean, basically, the devil was using Scripture to to convince and and to bring a truth, but twisting that truth in a way that would result in evil. And this is what evil does. Outright evil is generally easy to spot for most people, unless your conscience is seared and you're totally crazy. But true evil is wrapped up with light, with false light. And that's why I said many times, and I will say in the future, because we're going to document this more and more, that the real threat is not the deep state. It's not the big bad boogeyman of communism. It's not the dark side. It is the light that is coming. It's the light at the end of the tunnel. The light at the end of the tunnel, at least in the short term, is the false light of Lucifer that's coming upon the earth. As we get through this darkness together and we come back to good values, it's going to be a worldwide union of church and state. And again, everything I say, I can back up with a lot of detail, and I will do so. But this is the point. The point is that the the true evil will twist truth into its sayings to you to, to persuade you and to make you feel comfortable, to build rapport, to build trust, to reassure you. Don't be afraid to call me Holy Father. Are you kidding me? Which one do you fear, God or the Pope? You cannot have two masters. You cannot call... God the Father, Holy Father, which is a name reserved for God, and a sinful man, a human being that is on earth, just like the rest of us, Holy Father. You can't do that. That's that's blasphemy. And people do that without knowing, and of course, it is what it is in that sense because they are ignorant, but the people who do know are blaspheming God, and they should repent. But moving on, we have another article here that says, where can I find the original 1895 quote from the Catholic National about the Pope representing Jesus? Some great quotes here. Question, in 1895, an article from the Catholic National stated the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Not that I don't think it's true, and then I can find an original quote anywhere. Okay, so this is basically a question. Answer. Quote from the Catholic National is shared around on the internet. But since we don't have the primary resource documentation, we won't be able to confirm or deny its existence. However, we can share other quotes that are similar in nature. Some of these we've gone through. In the Time magazine, the article entitled Hand of Terrorism by George Church, it stated, shooting the Pope, it's like shooting God. We looked at that. Cardinal Sarto, who became Pope Pius X, said, the Pope represents Jesus Christ himself. And there's a picture of the document that this cardinal wrote. So you can look that up for yourself. It's a letter that he wrote. Take care that we lose is another one. Take care that we lose not that salvation, that life and breath which thou hast given us, for thou art our shepherd, thou art our physician, thou art our governor, thou thou art our husbandsman, thou art finally God on earth. This is a quote from Christopher Marcellus in 1512. 
He said this to Pope Julius II. So he's calling Pope Julius all the things that that belong to Christ, our salvation, <clears throat> our life and breath, our shepherd, our physician, our governor, our husbandman. I mean, it's, thou art finally another God on earth. This is a documented quote. Another one, this ancient Catholic document, Extra- Extravagentis Johannes, we looked at the son, refers to the Pope as our Lord God the Pope. We looked at that. John Paul II have said statements such as these, have no fear when people call me the Vicar of Christ. We looked at that. But another one he said is, we readily understand the devotion of St. Francis Assisi for the Lord Pope, the daughterly outspokenness of St. Catherine of Siena towards the one whom she called sweet Christ on earth, the apostolic obedience in the entire cum ecclesia of St. Ignatius Loyola, and the joyful profession of faith made by St. Teresa of Avila, I am a daughter of the church. So these people are all fanatics of the Pope and saw the Pope as, as God on earth and basically as Christ on earth, which that should raise an eyebrow for you if you have any ounce of discernment. This is Precleria Gratulani's Publicae, the reunion of Christendom. This is basically a encyclical by Pope Leo the 13th, about 100, 200 years ago, And I want you to hear something from this encyclical. Again, this is official, papalencyclicals.net. It's official documentation. So we're going to look here. We hold, you got to look for it. I didn't highlight it. I don't think I could highlight it. Here we go. But since we, now we, look at this, we is capitalized. We as in what? Are you like saying you're the Trinity? I mean, this is just nuts. But since we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and now that our advantage, our advanced age and the bitterness of anxious cares urge us on toward the end common to, to every mortal, we feel drawn to follow the example of our Redeemer and Master Jesus Christ, who went about to return to heaven, implored of God his Father in earnest prayer, that his disciples and followers should be of one mind and of one heart. I pray that all may be of one of mind and one heart. Of course, and this is talking about, oh gosh, man, there's just so much to break down on this. But first off, notice the language. We is capitalized. We hold upon places. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Are you kidding me? Again, remember the blasphemous words and names that the beasts would say. Blaspheming God, blaspheming the tabernacle, blaspheming the sanctuary. All these things are blasphemous. And we haven't even gotten into most of the stuff I want to cover today. But first and foremost, how can you hold the place of God Almighty on earth? Only Jesus is God. There is nobody that holds his place. He doesn't need people to hold his place. Jesus is God. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. But look at the the rest of it. You know, he talks about how we feel drawn to follow the example of our Redeemer, and again, it's just, it's language that just, this is why you have to have discernment. It's language that presents to you a truth that, oh gosh, we have to be of one mind. So what does that mean? A one mind according to what? According to the Catholic Church? That everybody should come back to the Mother Church and that's how we're going to please God? Are you kidding me? I don't think so. But you see, this is how they get you. They use scripture, just like the devil, use scripture to tempt Christ. They use scripture See, as the see in Scripture says, we should be of one mind. We shouldn't have all these disagreements and doctrine. Let's let's all unite and, and 
honor God. And of course, what that really means is ecumenism, coming back to the Mother Church, and of course, who's going to be authority over that? That's going to be the Pope. So you have to raise your eyebrows when you hear anything about ecumenism and we should unite and all this stuff. People want to unite at the cost of truth, and I say no to that, and so should you, because unification at the cost of truth is nonsense. Now, I want to talk about Vicarius Fili Dei, which is basically the Latin title of of the Pope, where he he's the vicar of Christ, but in Latin, remember, Latin is the official language of the papacy, because it's a Roman power, and <clears throat> this is basically the name, it's Vicarius Fili Dei, it's vicar of the Son of God, Fili is Son, Dei is God, Vicarius is Vicar, and how that relates to 666 and the number of the beast. Now, we know from Revelation that the the mark of the beast will, will have some number associated to it. And a lot of people have had their theories about it. I will discuss that a little bit as well in a future episode. But the point is this. There are many things that point to the Antichrist power. This is one of them. And I want to say this, that what we're going to talk about here, it kind of borders borderlines into mysticism. I don't support that. I don't support gematria. I don't go about and add the numbers, uh, the the numbers of letters, and, and try to. Count. I don't do that, and I don't think you should either. However, however, these are interesting. Most of the things I present to you, they're very factual, and again, they're history, and I take them, you know, seriously. This is one of these things where I'm showing it to you just as more of an interesting thing. I don't put weight into adding the numbers of names and all these types of things. However, again, it's all very interesting. So with that in mind, now that I've kind of said that, <clears throat> let's look at this. In the Greek, Greek numbers, in Greek, there's basically, each letter has different numbers associated with it. And again, all this is documented on this website that I'm showing you, and it's in the resources. But the ancient Greek word for the Latin-speaking man is latenos. And if you add the letters for Latinos, it adds up to 666. So that's interesting. Latin is the official language of the Roman Catholic Church. Church documents are usually published first in Latin and then translated from the Latin into other languages. The association of Latinos with 666 was first suggested by Irenaeus. This was as early as the 2nd century, right after, you know, Christ. I mean, pretty early church who proposed in his Against Heresies that it might be the name of the fourth kingdom in Daniel. Gosh, I wonder. I wonder if Irenaeus was right. He is right. Then also, Latanos has the number 666. This is the quote from Irenaeus. Then also, Latanos has the number 666. And there's a very probable solution, this being the name of the last kingdom of the four seen by Daniel. For the Latins are they who at present bear rule. I will not, however, make any boast over this coincidence. So Irenaeus in the second century saw that there was some relationship between the Roman power and the power that was to come in, in the, the language of Latin. So it's very interesting. Again, very interesting stuff. Now in Greek, you have other words that add up to 666. The Latin kingdom, which is He Latin Basileia, which adds up to 666. You have the ancient Greek for Italian church, Italica Ecclesia, 
This is also, it adds up to 666 using the value of these various letters in Greek. <clears throat> in ancient Greek, you also had the word for apostates. You had 666. Again, all adds up to the same thing. In ancient Greek, the word for tradition, paradosis, adds up to 666. So you have these things that intersect. The uh, Italian church, the Latin kingdom, apostates, tradition, all of them add up to 666, which is very interesting. Now, Vicarius Filidei, which is in Latin, adds up to 666, because again, every letter in Latin has a particular value, and if you add up those values, it all adds up to 666, which again, it's just so interesting. You look at some other words like Dux Clary, which means captain of the clergy, that adds up to 666. Ludovicus, which means vicar of the court, adds up to 666. In Hebrew even, you have Romith, which is the Roman kingdom, that adds up to 666. Romiti, which means the Roman man, adds up to 666. So you have just these constant parallels of the same thing. Now again, I don't put my attention on these things as a primary foundation for building my faith or what I believe or you know, because you can get easily lost in gematria and mysticism and hunting for secret knowledge and all these things that a lot of people today are doing by the way. A lot of people today are trying to do gematria and getting, you know, absorbed in all these and trying to predict, oh, you see this is talking about Trump and whatever else. I mean, look, these are mystical Kabbalah, you know, secret knowledge, Gnostic type of things. Nevertheless, again, I showed you these things because they are very interesting. Vicar of Christ, especially Vicarius Filidei in Latin, is a title that the Pope used. It's a title that the Pope was recognized by, and in Latin, it adds up to 666, which again, it's very interesting. Now, we know from Wikipedia that the papal title was used by the Pope. The Protestant writer Andreas Hulig, Helwig suggests that Vicarius Filidei was an expansion of the historical title Vicarius Christi, rather than an official title used by the popes themselves. We're going to look at this, because this is not correct, but I'm reading to you the Wikipedia version first. His interpretation did not become common until about the time of the French Revolution. Oh my gosh, isn't that interesting? I wonder why. I wonder why there's suddenly a, a dialectic there. Catholic apologist Patrick Madrid answers the Protestant assertions by claiming that Vicarius Filidei has never been an official papal title. Hmm. Well, let's, let's see about that. Okay, so we're back here at this document that we're looking at previously, and we're going to look at Vicarius Filidei, the historical proof. The donation of Constantine is the most famous forgery in European history and was discovered in the Pseudo-Isidorian Decretals in the 9th century. The forger is thought to have been Johannes Haimonides, John the Deacon of the 9th century. The Pseudo-Historian Decretals are fictitious letters alleged to be from early popes, Clement and A.D. 100 to Gregory the Great in A.D. 600, collected by Isidore Mercator in the 9th century. Since the scholarly criticism of the 15th century, they have been known to be forgeries and have been called pseudo-Isidorian decretals, or false decretals, to acknowledge that they are fraudulent. The donation reads in part as follows in Latin, caps added for emphasis. It's in Latin, and then you have Vicarius Filidei, which is in these false decretals. But stay with me because there, there's more to this. 
In English, it says this, As the blessed Peter is seen to have been a constituted vicar of the Son of God on the earth, so the pontiffs who are the representatives of that same chief of the apostles should, should abstain from us and our empire the power, should obtain from us and our empire the power of supremacy greater than the clemency of our earthly imperial serenity is seen to have conceded to it. Choosing that name, choosing the same chief of the apostles and his vicars to be our constant intercessors with God. So supreme authority, intercession, basically God on earth. So this was used in this document. It's a forgery. They were found to be forgeries, but they were used in this document. And there's more to the story, though. The donation of Constantine was cited in writing by no less than 10 popes as proof of their civil authority and sovereignty over Rome and what came to be known as the Papal States, which included a large portion of Italy. It was also eventually exposed as a pious fraud in 1440 by Laurentius Valla, who proved the donation had to have been written several centuries after the the death of Constantine. The Vatican condemned Valla's scholarly work by listing it in the Index Liborum Prohibitorium, the Index of Prohibitive Books in 1559. And as late as 1580, the official edition of the Corpus Juris upheld the, the genuineness of the false decretals. So the donation of Constantine was held to be genuine for centuries. And that's the point. Here are the papal documents in which the Vicarius Filidae appears in various forms. Pope Leo IX, and you can look this up in Terra Pax Hominis, this is 1054. Pope Nicholas IV, uh, Pope John XXII, Pope Paul uh, VI, all these Roman numerals, they really make you think, Pope Paul VI. So all these documents are from 1054 all the way through 1968. And you can see Vicarius Day appear in all of these. And not to mention the fact that it was basically in this forgery. Now, there was a lot of documents being forged. And again, this is a whole other can of worms. But that's why you can't trust history, like the Art of War. The Art of War was not written by Sun Tzu in 400 B.C., most assuredly, it was probably written by Jesuits and they were doing their occult thing that they do, which is they reveal what they're going to do before they do it so that people go along with it. And so ultimately, again, if you study the art of war, it was first translated into French by a Jesuit one year before they were banned and a couple of years before the French Revolution and the Pope was arrested. So look, history testifies very clearly, but you have to dig because history is written by the winners and there's a lot of forgery. With that in mind, this forgery, the, do- the donation of Constantine that referred to Vicarius Filidei, meaning basically the, the vicar of the Son of God, you are supreme authority on earth over all things. You're basically God. This document was referenced by 10 popes. It was the, the person who tried to expose it in the 1400s was basically chastised and his books were banned. His research was banned by the Vatican. So obviously they supported it, not to mention all the other popes who used and referenced this title in all their encyclicals and letters, as you can see, again, in this in this uh, resource. So the whole claim that, of course, the Catholic apologists will say that, oh, we never really used that title. That was just, This is just a Protestant thing to try to pin the Antichrist on the Pope. Well, guess what? You did use that title. Don't lie. History testifies against you. And again, Vicarius Filidei in Latin adds up to 666. So isn't history interesting? I think it is. I think it's just so interesting. And it just goes on and on, man. We're barely through the Pope here. But look, here's another one. 
Pope Francis gives all priests permission to forgive the grave sin of abortion. So the Pope gives, not only can the Pope forgive sins, but he gives the right to other mortal men to forgive sins too? Like that is blasphemy beyond anything that I can imagine. I mean, there's just so many blasphemous things. Do you realize that Jesus was, they, one of the reasons they wanted to crucify him and they tried to kill him so many times, and of course, the reason why they crucified him, one of the reasons was that he claimed to forgive sins. The Pharisees were constantly after him and accusing him that, oh, you know, he's claimed to forgive sins and he's claiming this. So, obviously, to claim to forgive sins means what? It means to claim to be God. So, if you are claiming to forgive sins, that you have that power, when only God alone has that power, and you're not only doing that, but you're giving that power supposedly to other men to do it. It's just like, I mean, it's just crazy. People read this headline and say, oh my gosh, thank you. Oh, now, now we can forgive this sin. And you see what happens? People come to a mortal man instead of going to Christ and confessing their sin to Christ and repenting of it and being forgiven in a genuine relationship with Christ. Why do you need to go to a priest to forgive your sins? Why do you need somebody in a position of seeming authority to tell you what to do? I mean, this is just spiritual blindness. It really is. But remember, Christ was killed because he claimed to forgive sins, which he can. He is God. But he was killed because only God can forgive sins, and they accused him of blasphemy, which, of course, it wasn't blasphemy because he was God on earth, not the Pope. But moving on, this is a book called The Dignity of of the priesthood, duties and dignity of the priest, a collection of materials for ecclesiastical retreats, rule of life, and spiritual rules. Gosh, there's so much here. Okay, so I've zoomed in a little bit, and we're going to read this because this is just a crazy book. This book was written in the 17th century, so keep that in mind. It was a long time ago, meaning these things were very much active in the church. This is small, so I'm going to try to do my best to read it. Priests are called vicars of Jesus Christ because they hold this place on earth. So again, we hear that same language. You hold the you hold the place of Christ, says St. Augustine to them. You are therefore his lieutenants. In the Council of Milan, St. Charles Barmaneo called priests the representatives of the person of God on earth. Gosh, that's... That's another great blasphemy that they're doing. And before him, the apostle, the apostle said, For Christ we are ambassadors, God, as, it's, as it were, existing through us and by us. Let's keep going. When he ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ left his priests after him to hold on earth his place of mediator between God and man. No, he did not. Where does it say that in the Bible? Particularly on the altar. Really now. Let the priest, says St. Lawrence Justinian, approach the altar on an, as another Christ. According to St. Cyprian, sorry, the font is really small here, guys. I'm trying to read it. Okay, this, this book you can look up, and again, it's on page 34 of Dignity in the Priesthood. And again, the link is in, it's in the Internet Archive, but this is an old book. According to St. Cyprian, a priest at the altar performs the office of Christ. When, says St. Chrysostom, you have seen a priest offering sacrifice, consider the hand of Christ is invisibly extended. 
The priest, hold, the priest holds the place of the Savior himself when by saying, Ego te absolvo, he absolves from sin. This great power which Jesus Christ has received from his eternal Father, he has communicated to his priests. No, he does not. Jesus, says Tertullian, invests the priests with his own powers. To pardon a single sin requires all the omnipotence of God. This is true. This is true. See, they give you a little truth. O God, who chiefly manifests thy almighty power in pardoning and showing mercy. Absolutely, says the Holy Church in one of her prayers, I believe is the last word, prayers. Yeah. So anyway, the point is this. They believe that the priest is God on earth and that the priest received this commission from Jesus to basically, you're Jesus now. But wait a minute. Jesus is in heaven ruling as king and also and also high priest. He's the high priest that intercedes for us with God. We have an invisible king. This is what the Israelites stumbled against and why God gave them a physical king and for them to realize that the ineptitude of having a physical ruler as king, unless it was God. And of course, that's what the whole type for the Messiah was. But this is just blasphemy to say that you can forgive sins, that Christ said, you know what, you you do the job that I need to do. Ultimately, this is a rejection of the truth that Christ is competent enough to rule from heaven and to intercede from heaven. Why do you need somebody physical here on earth to do the intercessory work for you and to forgive you of your sins? Why do you need that? It's because people need idols. They need physical things and they don't have a spiritual understanding. They don't have a spiritual understanding of spiritual things, of true things. They need physical, fleshly things to feel reassured, which of course is an illusion because it leads to death. You don't get saved through the priest. You don't get forgiven through the priest or through the Pope. You get forgiven through Jesus and having a relationship with him. But of course, the Mother Church has to be in between you and God, just like the serpent came in the Garden of Eden. The serpent cannot stand the fact that God had his creations that he loves and he's in a relationship with them. So he has to separate and come between that relationship. And it's the same thing over and over again. You know, we say that the Pope is infallible. I don't say that, but that's what you hear. But Scripture says in Romans 3, verse 23 through 24, that all of us have sinned and come uh, and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. Now, how do you become a Pope and say that you have infallibility when you were born into the Genesis curse, you were born a sinful human being, and you remain sinful. Are, you, are we saying that the Pope can't sin? The Pope doesn't get angry? The Pope doesn't have thoughts that he shouldn't? The Pope doesn't say things that he shouldn't? Well, certainly history testifies against that. There's plenty of sin in what I just talked to you about with all these different blasphemies of sitting in between the cherubim, of claiming himself to be the, the representative of God on earth to forgive sins. These are not just... Like, oh man, I saw a picture of a cute girl and I thought dirty thoughts. These are like intentional, blasphemous, sinning with a high hand type of sins. But of course, if you're Catholic and you worship the Pope and you think that that's the truth, you're going to find that offensive. And I hope that this is opening people's eyes. But let's move on. Let's talk about the Pontifex Maximus title. This is the title that the Pope has to this day. In fact, on Twitter, if you look on Twitter, he's still 
at Pontifex. So where does this title come from? Which is very interesting. Because first and foremost, this title means the bridge builder, the greatest bridge builder, the peacemaker. And of course, the bridge between heaven and earth, which is what Jesus is. But we know who wants to be in that place. Now in Daniel 8, verses 24 through 25, it says this, His power shall be great. This is talking about the little horn, the Antichrist power. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become very great. Certainly is fulfilled in the papacy. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So, of course, that means he's going to be broken ultimately by Christ because this system will per- persevere until the very end. Now, in the KJV, it, it says in verse 25, and through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. So he's got cunning and policies and he doesn't really have a military of his own. It's very interesting that Pontifex Maximus is this title that talks about building bridges, the great peacemaker. The Pope is always the great peacemaker. And we can look at an article really quick. How the Pope lifted the Iron Curtain. Let's look at that. Despite having no armies under his command. Oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I just love that. And no weapons to deploy. Pope John Paul II played a pivotal role in one of the 20th century's greatest geopolitical dramas the struggle against the Soviet Union's forceful dominance in Asia and Eastern Europe. Years later, former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev reflected on the changes that occurred behind the Iron Curtain. It would have been impossible without the Pope. Isn't that interesting? Some chronicles of his historical period portray John Paul as one part James Bond and two parts John the Baptist. Oh my gosh, people are just wandering after the beast, aren't they? Just as Revelation says, they will wonder after the beast. They will marvel at the beast, the great bridge between people, the great peacemaker. And again, this is why all of these dialectics in the Middle East between communism and nationalism, between right and left, they're all pushing and pushing and pushing so that there is conflict in the world. Wars and rumors of wars. Remember what Christ warned us about? Why is that? Because then that's how they're going to bring their solution. Who's going to be the peacemaker? Who do you think? You have to open your eyes to these things. The great bridge builder, Pontifex Maximus. Now, we'll talk about the history of this title because it's from Babylon. But the College of Cardinals and the Pope, all the structure of the Vatican is just a pagan Babylonian system. This is what the College of Pontiffs and the Emperor had in the Roman Empire. This Pontifex title was inherited from the Chaldeans, which were Babylonian. They're basically the Chaldean priests that were driven away from Babylon by the Persians. When the Persians took over and basically judged Babylon, the Chaldean priests were driven to Pergamum. Okay, now Pergamum, if you recall from Revelation, this is where Christ says that Satan has his throne in Pergamum. And so, of course, this place has a lot of history. Which now begs the question as to, okay, if these, if this place is called the throne of Satan, 
and this is where the, the Babylonian priests left, then why is this title, why was it given to the Romans and then still inherited by the Pope? Like, why is he still using this title? Which is very interesting. So let's read a couple things about this title. First one is about Italus III, Philometor Eugetes. This man basically was the one who bequeathed his title and his property to the Romans when they took over. Italus was born in 170 BC. He died in 133. He was king of Pergamum from 138 to 133, who by bequeathing his domains of Rome, or bequeathing his domains to Rome, ended the history of Pergamum as an independent political entity. So when he was conquered, he was the emperor of, or the king of Pergamum. Now, of course, he was king and high priest. He was pontifex. Remember, that the Babylonians had taken all their king and priest systems. This always has been about being like God. Who is the true king and priest? Okay, you got to put it all in perspective. Jesus Christ is the true king and priest. He has both kingly authority and he's both high priest. But of course, Satan is a copycat. He tries to copy. And all these satanic worldly systems that have been created have sought to copy the true God, to be like God. The Babylonians, all the way from Nimrod, all through Assyria, it's always been having this God-man, the pharaohs, that's also king and also basically ruler of spirituality. It's like God, basically, ruler of overall things, morality, geopolitical, economy, all under one man. And so Italus and his high priest, he was pontifex, when he was conquered, when Pergamum was conquered and annexed into Rome, Italus conferred this title to the Caesars. He said, here, you're now pontifex, as an honorary thing, basically, uh, to, to show their submission. Now, if we go to a little more research on this, this is the New World Encyclopedia, Pontifex Maximus, and we read a little bit about it. Let's see here. The Pontifex Maximus title, which literally means greatest pontiff or great bridge builder, was the high priest of the ancient Roman College of Pontiffs. Gosh, isn't that funny? You have the College of Cardinals, and then you have the College of Pontiffs. Same thing, same system, nothing has changed. This was the most important position in the ancient Roman religion, open only to patricians until 254 BC, when a plebeian first occupied this post. A distinctly religious office under the early Roman Republic, it gradually became politicized until beginning with the Emperor Augustus. It was subsumed into the imperial office. So slowly but steadily, this was all setting stage for the Little Horn Power, which is again the reunion of religion and politics, which was the papacy. Continuing on, its last use with reference to the emperors is found in the inscriptions of Gratian, emperor from 375 to 383 A.D., who, however, then decided to omit the words Pontifex Maximus from his title. The title of Pontifex Maximus, dating back to the times of the Roman Republic, was eventually adopted by the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, it was. The terms Pontifex Maximus and Sumus Pontifex were for centuries used by the Bishop of Rome, also known as the Pope. After Christ himself, the Pope is considered to be the high priest, the veritable meaning of Sumus Pontifex and Pontifex Maximus. However, this term is not officially included in his titles. Oh, I don't. I would beg to differ. Look on Twitter. But it is used in practice in the headings of his encyclicals and other papal documents. Oh, come on. 
I mean, you have to really be blind to accept these these apologetics, these half-assed apologetics about, oh, that's not what they really mean. Don't be afraid to call me Holy Father. It's just tradition. You know, Vicarious Philly Day, we never really use that title. It's just, all I hear is, all I hear is a snake just slithering around when I hear these things because it's just more snake language. So, what do we take from all this? Just a quick break on all this. We're done with stuff about the Pope. Okay, I still have stuff to talk about the doctrine of how they talk about Mary and all these other things, but ultimately, look, the Pope and the papacy is totally antichrist. What does antichrist mean? It means in place of Christ. There is nothing in history, no power in history that fulfills that better than the papacy. Now, we know from the Bible that antichrist as a, as a person, there's no such mentioning of the antichrist. John mentions who is Antichrist, meaning who is against Christ and who is in place of Christ. But there's no mention of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a thing that was developed by the Catholic Church to put your attention on the physical world, away from systems and powers to individual people. And of course, this has grown over time into dispensationalism and thinking that there's going to be a third Jewish temple and the Antichrist is going to walk into this temple. No. The Antichrist has already walked into the temple and proclaim himself to be God, and we saw that through the Pope and through the papal institution. But there is a term mentioned for an individual called the son of perdition, who the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and when he returns. And so basically this son of perdition is a representative of this Antichrist system, obviously. But the son of perdition, this term is only used for Judas. This is the only other time in the Bible when this is used. And Judas was what? He was part of the fold. He seemed like a Christian, right? He seemed like a a faithful apostle. He was also in charge of the treasury. He was in charge of the money. Isn't that interesting? Totally applies to the Pope. The Pope is the one that his head of the Vatican. The Vatican is the wealthiest institution on the planet, or on the earth, I should say. Wealthiest institution. Trillions and trillions. Who knows how many things that they have, but ultimately they're the wealthiest. And the Pope is in charge of that, who appears to be on Christ's side, but in reality, he's giving him the kiss of betrayal. So the little horn, also, we know from Daniel that he had eyes like a man, which denotes that this power has a representative. And again, this is all fulfilled and confirmed in the Pope. The papacy is a Babylonian institution that is designed to elevate man to a godlike status where he is king, remember papal coronations with tiaras, and also high priest, meaning, again, it's a copycat of Christ. If you understand the truth and you understand that Satan tries to copy the truth, none of this stuff should come as a surprise. All this stuff is just pagan and it's just trying to bring the antichrist system onto the planet, onto the earth. So, I don't believe in a planet, so I just keep saying that I have it. But anyway, that's another episode. Let's talk about Mary. So a lot of Catholics believe that she is a co-redeemer, co-redemptrix. She's a helper, that maybe she shuttles your prayers to Jesus, and she has some sort of role to play in redemption. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And there is no, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Bible is very clear, and this is not just the only verse. There's a lot of places where it's very clear that there is only one mediator 
between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. But let's look at the nature of these merry apparitions and see what their nature is. Are, are they something from God, or is it really Antichrist? This is an article in History and Culture, Portugal.com. What happened at the miracle of Fatima? Let's see what happened at the miracle, if it was actually a miracle or if it was a false sign and wonder, as the Bible prophesies. The first apparition was in May 13th, 1917. The Blessed Virgin Mary tells the children that she will be visiting on the 13th of each month for six months. Interesting numbers there, if you know anything about the occult. But let's move on. So there's got all these apparitions, it documents them, but then there's the three secrets. Hmm. Did Christ ever say that he said something in secret, or did he say that he said nothing in secret? He said there's nothing that he said in secret, so this should be a red flag. The three secrets were a series of apocalyptic visions and prophecies that the Virgin Mary revealed to the children. The first one on May 13th, 1917. Two of these secrets were revealed in a document written by Sister Lucia in 1941. Mary told the children the first secret in July of 1917. The first secret described hell as a horrible place where sinners' souls burn. Yeah, to some extent this is true. Hell is going to be where people are going to be judged and burned and destroyed in the second death. Very true. So, oh my gosh, suddenly now you feel like there's some truth there. But wait, let's keep going. Mary said that to save these souls, acts of prayer and sacrifice were necessary. Wait a minute. So Mary, or whoever is pretending to be Mary, which we'll find out soon enough, not Mary, because she's awaiting resurrection. It's not the real Mary. Mary said that to have to save these souls, you have to do stuff and you have to sacrifice in order to save these souls. Really? Is that the gospel? I don't think so. That is definitely not the gospel. Let's move on, though. The second secret prophesied the end of the First World War, but also the outbreak of the Second World War of sinning was to continue, of course, because they were the ones who planned these wars in the first place. But let's go on. Mary also called for the consecration of Russia or else peace would not occur. Many say she also predicted the rise and fall of communism. Hmm. If you remember the French Revolution and who was behind that, are we surprised? The third secret was not revealed that easily. In 1943, Lucia was ill and asked by the bishop to reveal it, but she said God had not authorized her to do so. The bishop still ordered her to write it down. Lucia decided to write it in a sealed envelope that could be only opened until or wasn't open until 1960. In 1960, the Vatican issued a press release stating that the third secret would remain sealed forever. Gosh, I wonder what's in the secret. For years, Christians around the world speculated on the content of the third secret, and some even feared it could refer to worldwide nuclear annihilation. <gasps> so much drama and secrecy by an organization that supposedly is Christian and out in the open and truth, and light. However, the secret was released in 2000 by Pope John Paul II. The Vatican said that the secret spoke of 20th century persecution of Christians, leading to the failed assassination attempt of Pope John Paul in 1981. Oh, okay, so the, the secret was, gosh, you know, the poor Pope is going to be, it's going to be an attempted assassination on the Pope. Isn't that something? Again, just more dialectics to make you fall in love with the beast. Seven powerful messages from Our Lady of Fatima. Now, this is this is what we want to read here because this is where we get down to brass tacks. Here are seven powerful quotes from Our Lady of Fatima's apparitions. Let's see what she has to say. Number one, Our Lady, do you wish to offer yourselves to God to endure all the sufferings that he may be pleased to send you 
as both an act of reparation for the sins with which he is offended and an act of supplication for the conversion of sinners. So this is this apparition, which is a demonic apparition, and if you don't believe me, just stay with me, please, and, and remember that the Bible is the authority on all things. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Yet here it says, as an act of reparation for the sins with which he is offended. So what is it saying? Is, what is it saying? It's saying that God is offended with your sins, and that you need to do something to do reparations for those sins. That is not the gospel. That, in fact, is antichrist, because what it's saying is that Christ's atoning work, all that brutality that he underwent to be sacrificed as a once-for-all sacrifice is meaningless if you have to do something to repair your relationship with God after the fact. Do you see how this is very subtle? This language, again, it's just, all I hear is, it's like a little serpent tongue in your ear because it sounds so good and it tickles your ear and makes you feel good because it talks, it seems like it's virtuous, but it is subtly putting these thoughts into your mind that are very blasphemous. It's all about discrediting Christ. Our Lady, well then, you will have too much to suffer, but the grace of God will be your comfort. Okay, sure. Number two, pray the rosary every day to obtain peace for the world and the end of the war. So again, do something if you want peace. You have to do works. Pray the rosary. What is what does the Bible say about these? We'll get to it, but it's not good. Number three, Jesus wishes to establish devotion to my immaculate heart in the world. Does he really? Where does that say that in the Bible at all? Where does it say anything about devotion to Mary or the immaculate heart? Where did Jesus say anything that in the Bible? If he didn't reveal it in the Bible, why on earth would would you trust a revelation thousands of years after, hundreds, I mean almost 2,000 years after, that's adding to that. Let's keep going. I promise salvation to those who embrace it, and these souls will be loved, will be beloved of God like flowers arranged by me to adorn his throne. Oh my gosh, it just sounds so pretty and beautiful, except you have this glaring thing in the middle that says, I promise salvation to those who embrace it. Who is doing the promising? Mary? Mary's promising you salvation? I don't think so. There's only one person that has ever promised you salvation that can deliver it, and that's Jesus Christ. This is demonic. This is satanic. This is Satan masquerading as what people want to see and slithering his tongue in your ear with things that sound so good, and yet they introduce poison into your mind and your heart. Number four, pray the rosary every day in honor of Our Lady of the Rosary in order to obtain peace for the world in the end of the war, for she alone can be of any avail. She alone? Really? What does the Bible have to say about that? I don't think it's she alone. I think it's God alone is the only one who can save you and change your circumstances. Yet the quote-unquote Our Lady says, pray the rosary in honor of Our Lady of the Rosary, so some sort of idol or you know, false god, and then she alone can only be available. Really? Fascinating stuff. I mean, really, just you have to read this. And people actually believe this and take it to heart and say, oh my gosh, Mary, Mary, Mary. They are so deceived. You are being deceived into idolatry and blasphemy. Number five, sacrifice yourself for sinners and say many times, especially when you make the sacrifice, oh Jesus, this is for love of thee, 
for the conversion of sinners and in preparation and in reparation for the sins committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Oh my gosh. I mean, it just makes me like I need to clean my mouth out after reading all this stuff. First off, there are no reparations for sins that we can do. Jesus did that for us, okay? And you're not sacrificing anything. You give your life to Christ and you become a living sacrifice. This is true. This is what the Bible says. But you're not making sacrifices. Jesus is the one who sacrificed once for all for us. And this Immaculate Heart of Mary and reparations for the sins committed against the Immaculate... Who is the Immaculate Heart of Mary that you need to repair for those sins? Where is that ever mentioned in the 2,000 plus years, 3,000 plus years of Scripture that has already been recorded by the Holy Spirit? So if this is contradictory to the Holy Spirit as it was revealed in Scripture, we know that God doesn't contradict himself. So use logic. This is not from God. Very simple conclusion. Number six, pray, pray much and sacrifice for sinners. There we go, sacrifice again. It's just this pagan thing to get you to work, to be outside of grace. For many souls go to hell because there is no one to sacrifice and pray for them. Really? Nobody? I beg to differ. There is one person and he sacrificed one time for all nations, for all people, that they may come to him. And that person is Jesus Christ. Number seven and the final one. I wish to tell you that I want a chapel built here in my honor. Of course, temples are where sacrifices are made which is what the Mass is, and they're pagan. I am the Lady of the Rosary, okay? Continuing to pray the Rosary every day. The war is going to end. The soldiers will soon return to their homes. False signs and lying wonders. It is truly amazing as you dig into this stuff, but it is what it is. I mean, look at this next one. Mary is necessary. This is from the CatholicTradition.org. Feast of the Maternity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay, the Mary is necessary. Let's read why Mary is necessary. In the 16th century, even amidst their many divergences, the the so-called reformers, so of course we know the position of this place, agreed in utterly rejecting all the honors paid by the Catholic Church to the Blessed Virgin Mary on the grounds that such veneration of the mother detracted from the supreme worship due to her divine son, which it does. Four centuries have more than sufficed to show that the result of so doing, the son has followed the mother. Really? I don't think so. Maybe in the Catholic mind. The descendants of those who refused to marry, refused to marry the title, the rights of Theotokos, mother of God, refused to Jesus the title of the son of God in the traditional sense of the term. So if you reject Mary, you reject Jesus. This is what this is saying. Mary is necessary. Many reject his Godhead altogether, placing him merely at the head of the line of great moral and social world teachers. Others still retain the word divinity with respect to him, but for them it is no longer synonymous with deity. Yeah, sure, this part is true. There's Unitarians that deny the Trinity. Uh, you know, Mormons have a clever way of calling Jesus the Son of God, but they don't actually believe that he was the pre-incarnate Yahweh, as the Bible teaches. And he's always been the same God. It just became incarnate as Jesus. So, yes, this last part is true, that many reject his Godhead altogether. So they give you some truth. It's like, oh, yeah, you're right. But again, truth mixed with lies is the, is the deadliest of poison. The Reformers saw rightly that there's no biblical basis for venerating, bowing down to icons, kissing icons, venerating Mary, worshiping Mary, basically praying to Mary, expecting Mary to be an intercessor for your prayers, uh, believing that Mary can redeem you, all these things, praying the rosary, 
None of these things have a biblical basis, but in fact are pagan. And again, we'll, we'll show that. And we showed that last time where we talked about Constantine, how he brought all these things into the church to make pagans okay with it, to expand the power of the Roman Empire. Constantine was not a church hero. I mean, church, I guess, in the sense of institutionalized church, but not in the true believer sense of the word. He was a church villain, and that's because he was led by a false spirit, as we covered in the last episode. But what does the Bible say? Well, let's look at the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ had no sin. He became sin for us and was punished on the cross for it. Romans 3, chapter, or verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We covered this, but this testifies against this idea that Mary had a sinless birth. That she would not that Jesus was born sinless. The Immaculate Conception is that Mary was born sinless. This is another false teaching. They're elevating Mary to a level that is never talked about in Scripture. Mary was the mother of God, absolutely. She had a very special role in the Bible. But she's also a human being, and that human being is dead and waiting to be resurrected, just as every other loyal, faithful human being that's lived in history. Of course, everyone's going to be resurrected, but some will be resurrected to the lake of fire. But Mary is awaiting resurrection. She is not appearing to people, guiding them to different things, to basically make shrines to her and to sacrifice and to pray the rosary and to believe that she's the only one that can deliver them. That's not, that's not Mary. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not God. That is the devil. The devil is portraying Mary. And you'll see more and more as we talk also about Islam in the next few episodes, that Mary as an idea is a pig, is an old pagan thing. Not not Mary the actual person, but what the church did with Mary and the story of Mary and Jesus and how basically it's created this whole cult of fertility worship and all these all these things that sound so crazy if you've never heard them. Again, if you're Catholic and you're looking at this, you're listening to it for the first time, I really, I feel for you because a lot of this stuff is very shocking. The cognitive dissonance is probably very real, but just stay with me and again, trust the Bible. Ask yourself very simply, the Bible and these things are very contradictory. So does, does God contradict himself? The answer is no. And so somebody's lying. It's not God. It's the institution. But we know the church prides itself on being the source of salvation. But we know in John 14, 6, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's nobody comes to the Father except through me, which is what I quoted at the beginning of this episode. The church was made to serve the Christian, not the Christian to serve the church. And this reminds me of the uh, section in Matthew 23 where Christ talks to the Pharisees and he basically says, Woe to you that you block people from entering the kingdom and neither neither do you go in yourselves. So you're basically, not only do you refuse to go in yourselves and repent and be genuine, but you're also actively working against me. And this is the, this is the story of the Catholic Church. It is making the, the sanctuary desolate. The plan of salvation is desolate because it has put itself in between man and God. Now we know in Hebrews 10 verse 20, 
that we have the full assurance of faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All these things are talking about imagery that was familiar to the Jews with the sanctuary. But that's because the sanctuary was designed to point to your relationship with Jesus, with baptism being a spiritual thing of being born again, with the sanctuary and the veil being representative ultimately of Christ's sacrifice, that his his flesh is the veil that allows us to communicate with God and have prayer and communion with him wherever we are. You don't need rosaries. You don't need Mary. You don't need a priest. You don't need the Pope. You have Jesus, and that's the point. But moving on, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5, we read that in the end times, there's going to be a group of people that have a form of godliness, but they're going to deny the power, which is the gospel. Verse 1, godliness, godlessness in the last days. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So the appearance of godliness, a lot of religiosity, but denying its power. What is the power of God? The power of God is the gospel. It is the power to salvation. It is the power to soften the heart and change somebody irreversibly. So there will be people in the last days when all of these, we can look around and see that this is being fulfilled. But especially the part about having appearance of godliness, but denying the power, meaning the gospel. So things that look like godliness but really it's denying the power of the gospel. And what are some of those things? Well, worshiping Mary, the angels, praying to angels, praying to saints, having icons, having statues, having relics, all these things that people go to, these pagan types of worships that people engage in. What does that mean? Well, the first commandment tells you that you should have no other gods besides me, right? God is the only God. There is nobody else that you pray to, that you worship, that you venerate. Veneration is just a clever way of disguising worship. You're telling me that you're bowing down and praying and kissing things. That's prayer. That's not veneration. That's worship. You don't do that. You do that only for God. And of course, God doesn't command you to go and bow down and kiss anything. He commands to just have a relationship, to love others as we love ourselves and to love God with our full heart, body, mind, and soul. And we know, again, statues of, you know, dead saints, you know, icons, all these different things. Another one that it breaks is the second commandment, which is about images. Don't make any graven images and bow down to them. Now, interestingly enough, the Catholic Church got rid of that commandment in its formulation of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't include that commandment, which is very interesting, don't you think? I think it is. We're also seeing that people are saved by sacraments and works and sacrifices like, you know, like uh, the Mary Fatima appearance. Oh, you have to sacrifice. You have to pray the rosary. You have to do all these things in order to be saved. And of course, the Catholic Church teaches a works-based gospel. 
It teaches that you can't be saved unless you have a relationship with the church. It teaches that you can't be saved unless you do certain things. But you don't do things. This is probably the biggest stumbling block for people in that in that state of mind. Also with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all these works-based religions. We don't do works to be saved. We do works because we're saved. When God saves you and regenerates your heart, he gives you a new heart. That new heart wants to do things differently. And as a result, your life changes. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, you have to do all these things and oh my gosh, you got to do, hopefully you make it. Hopefully you make it. Hopefully when Jesus comes, you, you, know, you, you did enough stuff where he's going to say, yeah, good job. Okay, you, you made it. You barely just made it. That's not the gospel. There's no assurance of faith. And first and foremost, you are denying the power of Christ to save you. His atoning work on the cross was perfect. But if you think that you need to do things to be saved, then you are denying that power, which is what the Bible predicted. Of course, there's also sanctification by the physical things instead of spiritual work of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 13, we're told the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So how are you sanctified? By the Spirit and by belief in the truth. What's the truth? The gospel. But wait a minute. The Catholic Church tells you that you got to drink holy water, that you have to fast, you have to eat you know, certain things on certain days. You have to have a censor that does, you know, you have to do the sign of the cross so many times. You have to do the rosary. You have all these external things that sanctify you. When in reality, those are fleshly things. It's not those things that sanctify you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit internally that sanctifies you. It's a relationship with Christ that's led hand in hand day by day through your conscience. It's not you taking over and trying to run this rat race of religion and spirituality to be sanctified. That doesn't sanctify you. That makes you obey the beast that that disciplines you into mind, you know, mind mental slavery in obeying the beast. Of course, there's also days of obligation and fasting and liturgical calendars and saints days and all these things that basically the Catholic Church made its own calendar. And of course, they forbid marriage to monks, nuns, priests. Look how many problems this caused. What does the Bible tell us? Well, in Colossians 2, Verse 16 says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Now, it doesn't mean Sabbath as in the weekly Sabbath, which is commanded in the Ten Commandments. There were Sabbaths that were, you know, basically holy days, you know, that were people keeping or not. And and so ultimately this is talking about don't be judging each other what you're eating and drinking. If you want to fast, Fasting is a godly thing to do, but it's not necessary for salvation. You don't have to do it. If you feel called to fast, then fast. But what's calling you to fast? The feeling that you aren't saved or the feeling that you want to get closer to God? That's really the ultimate thing. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says the same thing. It kind of clarifies this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So God created all things. If you want to eat pork, go ahead and eat pork. Okay, we're allowed to do that. There's no dietary laws. You know, if you want to eat meat on Friday, then eat meat on Friday. There's no 
There's nothing that says you have to do certain diets or have to eat certain things on certain days, but the Catholic Church, and of course the Eastern Orthodox Church, which I'm very familiar with, and the Mormon Church, don't have coffee, don't do this. All these things are were predicted by the Bible 2,000 years ago, that they would forbid marriage, just like they did in the past with paganism and pagan temples, and do all kinds of dietary restriction. These things are marks of paganism. They're not marks of Christianity. So the Bible is in consistent, you know, uh, consistent opposition to all these teachings of the Catholic Church. Now, I want to talk about transubstantiation. And this is the belief, basically, that the body and blood of Christ are being transubstantiated, or basically the, the bread and wine at the Mass is turned into, magically, supernaturally, into the actual body and blood of Christ. And then you have to eat that, and that's part of your salvation, which is probably one of the most blasphemous things that the Catholic Church has done. And we're going to look at that in many things. But first off, part of the transubstantiation teaching is that Christ is being sacrificed every week at the Mass. That's what the Mass is. It's a sacrifice in a temple, in a church. Churches are temples. A temple has sacrifices. Of course, we know that Hebrews 9, verse 24 says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to, su- nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have to head offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And of course, later in Hebrews 10, verse 14, for a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ came to die one time, to offer himself one time. It was final. When he said it is finished, that means it is paid in full. There's no more sacrificing needed. There's no more sacrificial system. There's no sacrifices. That's it. The only sacrifice is the living sacrifice you give to God through your life, through repentance and faith and trust, and you become a living sacrifice. No more sacrifice. No more killing animals. No more sacrifices. And certainly, no more sacrifice on his part. But the Catholic Church teaches exactly that, that you have to sacrifice Christ every Sunday on the day of the sun, mind you, and eat his body and blood in order to be saved, which is just on another level of blasphemy. So we're going to take a look at a couple things. Okay, so this is the metaphysical character of the sacrifice of the Mass. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The physical essence of the Mass, okay, let's get let's going, but there's a couple qualities that the, the Mass has to have, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia. The twofold consecration must show not only the relative but also the absolute moment of sacrifice, so that the Mass will not consist in a mere relation, but will be revealed is in itself a real sacrifice. The act of sacrifice, veiled in the double consecration, must refer directly to the sacrificial matter, i.e. the Eucharistic Christ himself, not to the elements of bread and wine or their unsubstantial species. The sacrifice of Christ must somehow result in a kenosis, not in a glorification, since this latter is at most the object of the sacrifice, not the sacrifice itself. Since this is postulated kenosis, however, 
can be no real but only a mystical or sacramental one. We must appraise intelligently those moments which approximate in any degree the mystical slaying to a real examination instead of rejecting them. So what's the point? The point is that the Mass is a sacrifice. This is what Catholic doctrine is. It's a real sacrifice. It has to be a sacrifice. Imagine that. Imagine you're going to a sacrifice every Sunday where supposedly Christ is supposed to be sacrificed every single Sunday in every single church in every part of the world. Thousands upon tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of sacrifices of Christ every single Sunday. That is madness. It is madness. Now, on the uh, on another document I want to take a look at is the 13th session of the Council of Trent. This is an older document. It's from the 1500s. And there's a couple interesting things here. This, is, this was a document that was very much setting church policy, what it believed in. Council of Trent was around the Reformation, and so they were fighting against the Reformers. But let's read chapter 1. First of all, the Holy Council teaches the and openly and plainly confesses that after the consecration of bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the august sacrament of the Holy Eucharist under the appearance of those sensible things. So it's not a metaphor. They want to believe that this is the actual flesh and blood of Jesus that is being sacrificed and then consumed by you, the people, which is crazy. Now, let's look at some more. There's a lot in this document that's interesting, but canons on the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. Canon one, if anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is only in it as a sign or figure or force, let him be anathema. And of course, the Catholic Church believes that you can't be saved if you're not in the church. So anathema really means let him go to hell. Let him not be saved. Of course, that's not true, but this is what they're saying because they believe they have the power to save people and to damn them. So if you don't believe this blasphemous heretical teaching, let him be anathema. Well, count me in because that is one of the most blasphemous things that the Catholic Church teaches. Now, we want to go back to this good old book, The Dignity of the Priesthood. And this one, again, it's from the 1600s, Dignity and Duties of the Priest, a Collection of Materials in Ecclesiastical Retreats, Rule of Life and Spiritual Rules. This is a crazy document, but we're going to zoom in here. Okay, this is on page 32, and this chapter is called The Grandeur of the Priestly Power. I thought the apostles were very humble. They didn't have grandeur and all this power, but let's let's keep going. Let's see what it says. The dignity of the priest is also estimated from the power that he has over the real and mystical body of Jesus Christ. So right away, that should be a big red flag for you. With regard to the power of the priest over the real body of Jesus Christ, it is of faith that when they pronounce the words of con- consecration, the incarnate word has obliged himself to obey and to come into their hands under the sacramental species. I mean, this is this is a Catholic document from the 1600s that was an official document. Look it up. <laughs> I mean, it's it's this is crazy. We are struck with wonder when we hear that God obeyed the voice of Josue, 
the Lord obeying the voice of man, of Joshua, basically, of man when Joshua basically told the sun to stand still. And made the sun stand when he said, Move not, O sun, towards Gebion, whatever the word says there. And the sun stood still. So basically they're saying, well, see, God. it says in the Bible that God obeyed Joshua when the sun stood still. But again, it's just taken so out of context. God doesn't obey mankind. God listens to our prayers and he entertains our prayers if it is in accordance with his will, but he does not obey mankind. This is absolute blasphemy. But of course they use that. Again, the, the devil uses scripture better than anybody and you have to have discernment. They use that to say that, see, the priest can, basically now Christ has to obey the priest when the priest says, go, become the Eucharist. I mean, it's just, it's absolute madness. But our wonder should be far greater than we find that in the obedience to the words of his priest, God himself descends on the altar that he comes wherever they call him, <laughs> like, like he's some kind of puppy dog. And as often as they call him and places, let's take a look at the rest of it, himself in their hands, even though they should be in his enemies. And after having come, he remains entirely at their disposal. They move him as they please from one place to another. They may, if they wish, shut him up in their tabernacle or expose him on the altar or carry him outside the church. They may, if they choose, eat his flesh and give him for the food of others. Are you, I mean, I'm just throttled by the text of this book. Oh, how very great is their power, says St. Lawrence, Justinian, speaking of the priests. A word falls from their lips, and the body of Christ is there substantially formed from the matter of bread and the incarnate word. Descended from heaven is found really present on the table of the altar. Never did divine goodness give such power to the angels. The angels abide by the order of God, but the priests take him in their hands, distribute him to the faithful, and partake of him as food for themselves. You know, I could keep going, but I'm just going to stop right there. Ultimately, I hope you get the point that this is just total blasphemy. I mean, it's just total blasphemy. What, I, what I've been reading, what, what I have been looking at with you, what we've been looking at together— this is just total madness. When Christ said that, eat my body, drink my flesh, or drink my, uh, drink my blood, eat my flesh, if you recall, many disciples left because they were just like, what? First off, all the Old Testament said, you shall not eat blood. <laughs> that was a serious thing amongst the Jews. So why would God come and contradict himself and say, Oh yeah, go ahead. You can eat my blood, which is the blood of God. That doesn't make any sense. You shall not eat blood. Anybody who does that would was going to get kicked out of the congregation. Don't do it. Okay. There's many times in the Bible where eating is used as a metaphor throughout Scripture to indicate partaking in or feasting on the Word. Like if you're feasting on the Word, what are you doing? You're reading the Bible. And you're allowing the words to soothe your soul, to enlighten you, to give you things that you haven't seen before, to educate you, to give you discernment so you're not fooled. These are the things that we are to be feasting on, but these are spiritual things. When Christ said he's the bread of life, it didn't mean eat his flesh, for crying out loud. It means partake of him, partake of his knowledge, of his gospel, of his love, 
of his relation of a relationship with him partake and you will be saved if you trust in Christ that's what this is about and of course people didn't get it at the time because they thought it was a fleshly they were interpreting his words in a fleshly way and of course satan always brings your attention to the physical world and so his efforts with the eucharist and with this communion thing the last supper was intended for us to have fellowship with one another to break bread with one another to have you know these things in remembrance of him of course but not in a way that blasphemes god and the work that christ did there's it's one thing to have communion as a fellowship at a table with one another to remember the work that christ did that was the once for all work See the irony? It remembrance of what? Remembrance of the once for all sacrifice. Yet this has turned into a fleshly way of reading the Bible and a way that remembers him through a fleshly constant sacrifice. I mean, it's just totally backwards. It is the mark of the devil. Now the question is, will this be part of the mark of the beast? Remember what they said. If you don't believe that this is the full body of body and blood of Christ, then you're anathema. And if we know the Catholic Church will be back in power with the woman riding the beast, as we've talked about over and over again, and I will talk about in future episodes as well, will this be enforced as part of the mark of the beast, which is very interesting? I don't know. Could be. Could be a part of it. But ultimately, it's nonsense. Another thing is infant baptism. We won't talk too much about this one, but look, in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, remember, again, suffered once, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, here's the, here's the point, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism is not about the physical thing that happens. It is about a rebirth, a washing away of sins. How do you wash away your sins? You get forgiven by Christ through repentance and faith. Of course, you're not doing it. He's doing it but your sins are washed away, and that is being born again. And of course, the physical ritual of baptism has always been a tradition in the church, and even Protestant denominations use that today, and there's nothing wrong with that as a way to sort of publicly acknowledge or feel that it's official. But the thief on the cross was never baptized. There are people that have been saved that haven't been baptized, and there are people that have been baptized as infants that turned out to be very bad people. And so the question is, why is the Roman Catholic Church doing infant baptism? Because it's their mark of authority. It is Satan's way of saying, no, you're going to do it like me, because he wants to be obeyed. And while he's teaching that and doing that, he's using scripture. See, oh, look, it's baptism. We have to be baptized. Well, it never never says infants have to be baptized. Why? Because infants cannot, cannot make an appeal to God for a clean conscience. If an infant dies, God will take care of them. God is just and merciful. But ultimately, God has a plan for each of us. And if we make it to adulthood, and if it's his plan to save us, then we will come to him with a 
repentant attitude and faith and trust. He'll bring us through his grace. And that's when we are, quote unquote, baptized. We're born again. And if you want to officialize that, then that's good. But ultimately, baptism is not about the ritual, the physical thing that happens. It's about a clear conscience. It's about making an appeal to repentance. That's why, again, when you're doing physical things, how do you know that your heart has changed? There's a lot of people in these so-called revivals that are happening across the country that are, you know, everybody's bringing the, the baptism and, okay, let's get them baptized. And how do you know these people are actually having a genuine change of heart? Now, I don't think it's for us to judge that, at least not immediately. But the point is this, all these revivals are very fleshly. And I don't really like calling them revivals because I don't think they're revivals, but that's another story. But the point is this, they're all so fleshly. It's about how you feel. It's about the music. It's about the experience and the high of getting baptized. It's not really about a change of heart. The focus is not scripture. The focus is not repentance. It's about joining something fun and, you know, it's cool. That's what that's about most of the time. And so these physical things, anything that draws your attention to the physical world has the mark of Satan on it. Infant baptism is just another doctrine that the Catholic Church teaches, which is nonsensical. Infants do not need to be baptized. Baptism is a coming to Jesus with a repentant heart, and it's a change of conscience, which, of course, is facilitated by his grace, because without his grace, we couldn't make that move to begin with. So, Daniel says that the little horn power will change times and laws. Let's come back to this point. The church has changed the Sabbath. I have a whole episode dedicated to that and the history of the Sabbath, The Sabbath is a moral command. It's part of the Ten Commandments. The church has changed that from Saturday to Sunday. You go and you rest on Sunday. You worship. Now, of course, you can worship any day of the week. But the church, the Catholic church, is pushing for worldwide acceptance of Sunday as the day of rest. And this will also come into play with the mark of the beast. Because when do you rest is a sign of God's authority as the creator, because he created the world, he created the calendar, and he also rested on the seventh day because that was a sign of his future resting in the tomb as Jesus. The day of rest is intimately tied to Christ and to the gospel. It's not about being legalistic, it's about seeing that the law is fulfilled in Jesus, meaning made more significant. We rest on Saturday. Not because if we don't, we're going to hell. No, you rest on Saturday because you remember the rest that Christ gave you from sin, the freedom that he's given you, the rest that you have because he's a provider. All these wonderful things are part of resting. And of course, there's always going to be something to distract your attention, but that's why we have grace, right? In the Old Testament, people would pick up sticks and get killed for that if they were working on the Sabbath. Now, yeah, you'll, you'll get distracted. You might do some work that you don't want to, but there's grace for that. The point is that we have the Sabbath as a moral commandment. It still has to be observed. But what does the church say? The church says that the mark of her authority, which I document very well in the Sabbath episode, it's not part of the series. It's a standalone episode, so go look it up on my channel. The Sabbath episode documents the mark of her authority that she's very proud of is the fact that she changed the day of rest which is God's day, 
from seventh from the seventh day to the first day. And again, they'll use scripture that, oh, the Lord rose on the first day, and you know, this is this and that, and it makes you feel so good about it. But the Sabbath is not Sunday. And if you pay homage to the beast on Sunday, it may become an issue in the future where the mark of the beast is enforced through the Sabbath. There's the green climate Sabbath. There's the secular Sabbath, the green Sunday movement. All these things are part of it. So just keep your eyes open. Now, the second commandment was removed by the Catholic Church, which is the commandment on images. Don't make any graven images and bow down to them. I wonder why the Catholic Church removed that. It's pretty obvious why. And so, of course, they ran out of commandments, and so they split up the 10th commandment into don't cover your neighbor's wife and don't covet your neighbor's goods, when really it's just about coveting. And so they changed the times and the laws. What other things did they change? Well, the Catholic Church, Pope Gregory was the one who instituted the Gregorian calendar, who changed basically the times. That was Pope Gregory the 13th. We know that today we believe the day starts at midnight. Of course, that's how the world works. But in the Bible, the day started at sunrise. I talked about that in the Sabbath episode too. So look at what happened. We went from seeing that the day begins when the light comes as a reminder of Christ's resurrection, as a reminder of our creator, to the day begins at midnight, which is the darkest point of the night. It is literally the opposite of what God intended in creation. So the time has been changed. Feast days, Lent, Saints days, God's festivals, all these things, you know, God had a festival calendar that he ordained with these different feasts that pointed to what? They pointed to Christ. And some people believe that those things should still be celebrated. Of course, you shouldn't celebrate these things because you feel you have to, but because you want to and they're a joy. I'm neutral on the idea But ultimately, look at what the Catholic Church has done. They have their own liturgical calendar with holidays and feast days and their own system that they have created that doesn't point to Christ, but where does it point to? It points to the church. It points to Mary. It points to the authority of the church. It doesn't point to Jesus whatsoever. Of course, you have Easter, but Easter is plagued with, you know, so many pagan things, and so is Christmas. All these things have roots in paganism. Now, of course, pagans didn't celebrate Christmas, okay? They didn't call it Christmas, but the things that people celebrate today all, for the most part, have roots in paganism. When Christmas happens and there's only lights and presents and snowmen, what does that have to do with Christ being born, the Messiah being born to save the world? Nothing. It's all just idolatry and fleshly, worldly things. So keep your eyes open. These things are are crazy, Now, we also have an interesting bit of history. This is not super significant, but I found it interesting, which is history of typology. Now, there's a man named Stanley Morrison who is the author of a typological revolution in writing. And, of course, even the font on this page I'm reading about him is in Times New Roman. Isn't that interesting? New Roman. Times New Roman. Why why did he call it that name? which is the name of the font that is used practically everywhere these days. But let's read about Stanley Morrison. He left school at the age of 14 so that he could work. During the First World War, he refused to serve in the military and thus was in prison from 1914-1918. Allegedly, he refused to serve due to religious beliefs. Through the interest in richly designed Jesuit books, oh, there it is. Isn't that funny? Everywhere you look, there's always a little trail for the snake. He became interested in printing, 
Beatrice occasionally described him as a man of strict and ascetic appearance. Okay, let's read something else about him. Stanley Morrison. He was late 1800s to mid-1900s. Born in Essex, he left school at 14 to work in an office. He was arrested at a conscientious objector in World War I and spent time in prison. He underwent a conversion to Catholicism that seemed to underpin his theories. He has been described as somber and austere with the countenance of a Jesuit. Gosh, isn't that interesting? And he was the author of basically this typological reformation. Before Morrison, the usual typefaces used in English printing were Plantin and Carlson, or Caslon. Morrison was the typographical advisor for Monotype. He he suggested to Monotype that they remake seven typefaces from the past. This was a revolutionary change. These new creations ushered in a typographical renaissance, so much so that one of the most popular fonts that we use today is Times New Roman, the time of the new Roman power. Do you see what I see? I hope you do, which is uh, very, very interesting. But let's talk a little bit about the afterlife now. Um, Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as it appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, again, there it is, to bear the sins of many, will appear at a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Praise the Lord. I hope you're eagerly waiting for Christ. I certainly am. This world is just a clown world, and it is coming to an end. But Hebrews and the rest of the Bible testifies that there is no such thing as an immortal soul. We do not have eternal life outside of Christ. We have the resurrection to look forward to, and everybody will be resurrected. Death is not the end. Of course it's not. But we'll be resurrected, and some will be resurrected to glory. Some will be resurrected to the lake of fire. But the Catholic Church has propagated this idea of this afterlife, which is a pagan idea. And again, I'm going to have a whole series on this. I really don't want to get too much into it because it's a very complicated topic. Suffice it to say that the Hebrews who wrote the Bible did not believe in an immortal soul. They believed in a soul, but that soul was contingent with the body, which is why it's so important that we are resurrected. Otherwise, we do not exist. And that is frightening. It's a really scary idea. And that's why all the people like Abraham, David, they all looked forward to being resurrected. Resurrection was what the apostles and Jesus taught. They didn't teach about reincarnation. They didn't teach about purgatory. They didn't teach about life after death. They taught resurrection. So what does the Catholic Church teach in contrast to all these teachings of the Bible? Well, they teach that praying for the dead, that you can give people basically a second chance. If you do certain things, then that'll help their journey through the afterlife. This is a pagan idea. The immortal soul, of course, the serpent said to Eve, what did he say? You shall not die. That's part of the lie of the Garden of Eden. You're not going to die. Don't worry. There's, there's this whole realm that you get to exist in. How many people have been fooled and given their lives for that invisible realm? Look at all the jihadis in Islam that they were taught they were going to have this luxurious afterlife with 70 virgins and whatever if they go kill themselves and destroy other people when in reality now they're going to be resurrected to the lake of fire because of that. Horrible. Just absolutely Horrible. But let's move on. Saints. You know, the saints throughout the Bible were living believers. Why? Because our God is a God of the living. He's not a God of the dead. That's what the Bible says. 
all the pagan gods of the old religions, and even now, they were all underworld gods. They were gods of dead things because they couldn't be gods of living things. Otherwise, they would have to do what God does and create life, and they can't. Nobody can do what God does, and that's, that's his signature, his life. But all these gods, they were gods of the dead. They were dead religions. They were death cults. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, all these people, the, the Greeks, they all believed in an underworld. And they all prayed for the dead and had all these rituals for the dead. So the saints, what the Bible says, are believers, living believers. The Catholic Church turned into what? Dead people. Do you see the inversion, the satanic inversion? The Catholic Church turned it into dead people that you pray to, as opposed to living people who are in a relationship with Christ. I mean, it's just, it's just absurd. What about purgatory? It was a second chance. You know, if you... If you're kind of, if you did enough work, or I should say, if you did some work but not enough, you get to go to this purgatory place and you're kind of working your sin out in this imaginary place. But it doesn't exist. There's no such thing. And certainly the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Why would there be? Death is final. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ before you die, then that's it. You don't, you don't make it. And ultimately that's not up to us to decide because God will save whom he has chosen to save. So there's reassurance there. But ultimately, we have to remember that these things are very black and white in the Bible. Of course, purgatory is a gray area that doesn't exist. But it's there because of indulgences. And indulgences are the idea that you can have your sins forgiven. You don't have to go to purgatory. In fact, you can have your sins forgiven the whole life so you can keep sinning, but you know, you're going to be fine. These things were sold by the papacy throughout the medieval time that it was ruling the world, basically, 1260 years. But guess what? Guess what? Look at this. Pope to grant plenary indulgences on World Day of Grandparents and the Elderly. The Pope is going to grant, on the occasion of the First World Day of Grandparents and the Elderly, Pope Francis grants plenary indulgences to grandparents, the elderly, and all the faithful who participate, motivated by a true spirit of penance and charity. Oh, gosh. Such a beautiful thing if they're motivated by the, a true spirit of, of penance and charity, then let's give them a plenary indulgence, meaning your sins are forgiven, you no more temporal punishment, no more, you know, nothing to worry about, no hell, no purgatory. Who is able to do that other than God? Not only that, but you get that through a relationship of faith and repentance. To Christ. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see how the Pope is usurping God's power? And of course, he's not actually doing that, but he's trying to. He's putting himself before man and God and saying, no, 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 no. Don't worry. It's, it's I'm the one who's giving you that forgiveness. And there's no there's not even a change of heart here. How are you going to judge who's motivated by a true spirit of penance and charity? Do you have that ability? Can you read minds? Can you read the heart? Do you know every person... Did you knit them in their mother's womb like God did? I don't think so. So how can you truly judge if someone is motivated motivated by a true spirit of penance and charity? I mean, it's nonsense. It's total nonsense. But this article is here to show you that the papacy is still doing what it was doing in the medieval ages, which is with indulgences. Indulgences are blasphemy. What about prayer? Rosaries, prayer beads, countless repetitive prayers, prayer books, What about that? Well, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 gives us the answer. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Reading mantras, saying things over and over and over and over and over and over again, thinking that that is somehow sanctifying you, or if you say a hundred times this, you know, then then Christ will hear you, then that'll, you know, get to God's throne. This is a pagan idea. It's as old as time. And Catholics do it. Eastern Orthodox do it. Oh, you got to say your rosary. Just keep saying it. Just sit there in like a possessed state and run through your rosary saying the same thing over and over again. That's not prayer. Prayer is designed to be authentic communication with God. And you have that right and ability through Jesus because he died once for all and he died so that the connection between man and God would be open. That connection means you can be out in the forest, you can be wherever, you can be in a stressful situation. You don't need to sacrifice anything. You don't need to make yourself pure. You can just come before the Lord and bring your grievances, bring your your fears, bring your gratitude, whatever it is. You can do that anytime, anywhere. You don't need to be in a church. You don't need to be you know, in front of a priest. You can do that anywhere because you have a relationship with Christ. This is the gospel. But instead, of course, prayer to the Catholics and Catholic institution, I should say, is a repetitive pagan way of doing things, of just saying, oh, if I say, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, Jesus Christ, if I say that a hundred times a day, then then I'll be forgiven of my sins. Like, this is nonsense. This is just absolutely nonsense. Everything about what the Bible teaches, the Catholic Church and the papacy has twisted upside down, which is a mark of Satan. And what about property? We're almost done here, guys. We've still got a few more, but I want you to really, again, this is this is going to be a resource for you, and I really hope it is. But property in the Old Testament, the whole thing with the church was a decentralized situation. It was a decentralized authority. Sure, you had disciples and you know had basically people shepherding other people, but it was decentralized, relatively decentralized, where basically everybody owned their thing and they would tithe, they would contribute, but it was a very decentralized situation. Now you have a centralized situation where it's back to the Old Testament thing of tithing to the temple. Tithing was an Old Testament thing, okay? Versus now in the church, everybody had everything in common. It was much more shared and decentralized, but now it's much more centralized. And all the churches, the Mormon church, the Eastern Orthodox church, the Catholic church, the, you know, all these centralized churches that are very institutionalized, they all argue the same things to defend their institution, when in reality, Christ never came to bring an institution. He came to bring a new way of life. What about creation? Let's talk about creation. Gosh, this all of these things could be an episode in and of themselves. I hope you see that. Okay, this is from BBC News, and what does it say? Pope Francis, Big Bang and evolution confirm that God exists. I mean, this is just laughable. It's got a picture of him just smiling, waving to everybody. Oh my gosh, everybody's just in love with the Pope. So what's going on here? First off, first and foremost, you need to be aware that the last 500 years of astronomy have been dominated by the Vatican. If you didn't know that, then now you do. Most of the observatories, astronomers, and history, they were all controlled by the Vatican. 
And this is a whole other episode, but let's just put it this way, that cosmology that people believe today and the heliocentric model, this has been influenced very heavily and directed by the Vatican, and for a very good reason. The author of the Big Bang was a Jesuit. His name was George Lemaitre. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but ultimately the author of the Big Bang was a Jesuit. So that should be a red flag too, if you know anything about the Jesuits. Why does the Vatican have exclusive control over astronomy over the last 500 years? Why do they have a telescope that's the most powerful telescope called Lucifer? Of course, it's an acronym for, oh, it's got all these, you know, it's an acronym for such and such. But they could have picked any kind of acronym. They picked Lucifer. And that that telescope is on Mount Graham in Arizona. I live in Arizona. And the Apaches and the native peoples fought the Vatican in a pretty big court battle for this land. Because this was a holy site to the Apaches. Why? Because this place was supposedly a place where there were portals. Portals of these fallen entities that came to earth. And again, if you study this, you know what I'm talking about, the fallen angels. They're not aliens. They're fallen angels. And one of the places that was very revered by the native peoples as being a portal is Mount Graham, where so happened to be the Vatican who lobbied and won, insisted that they put their Lucifer telescope on this mountain. They had so many mountains they could put it on. Why did they insist on this one? Isn't that interesting? But all this should... Raise an eyebrow, because first and foremost, evolution is nonsense, and so is the Big Bang. And so what is the Pope doing here? He's basically acting like, oh, no, 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 I'm on God's side. See, these things prove God. And in doing that, he takes the truth, which is God, and unites it with a lie in your mind, so that you say, well, he's obviously fighting for God here. So in doing that, he acknowledges passively that evolution and Big Bang are true which they're not. And you see how that sleight of hand is done again? It's all snake talk, and you have to be very, very, very wise to it. And that only happens with biblical discernment. But the Pope is also obsessed with the climate. Climate justice, social justice, climate justice. But what about the Genesis curse? The, the Genesis curse tells us that the earth is cursed to decay and die until the return of Christ. Why? Because of sin, and sin leads us to the knowledge of repentance, and repentance and faith lead us to a relationship with Christ. But in the climate justice agenda, it's about uniting the world's religions. Oh, we all have a home, Mother Earth, 10 new climate commandments, let's not, you know, sin against the earth, and it's about this worldly thing that takes your attention away from the reason we have climate change in the first place, which, number one, is the Genesis curse. Number two, it's because we're in the end times. The end times talk about all kinds of signs in the sky, earthquakes, problems, pestilences that are going to happen because it's the end times. So all of that is being obfuscated, hidden by the Pope with this worldly, fleshly gospel that again brings people into union with the church. Because guess who's going to be at the head of all these climate committees and climate act. It's the peacemaker. It's the one that's wearing the white hat, the bringer of light, the vicar of Lucifer on earth, which is the truth. Let's talk about sexuality. Here's a couple of great articles for you. Okay, the AP, this is from the AP. The AP interview, Pope says homosexuality is not a crime. 
There he is again, just everybody's wandering after the beast. So what does the Bible have to say? Well, the Bible condemns homosexuality. In fact, homosexuals will not be in the kingdom of God. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. So if you're the type of person that refuses to change and you identify as a homosexual, then that's a real problem for your soul because the Bible condemns that on many occasions and warns people that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you are identifying as a homosexual. A lot of people have same-sex attraction. That can be a temptation. It can be something you genuinely struggle with and there's support for you. But when you say, I'm gay or I'm lesbian or I'm whatever, you are now saying, I am this. I am, this is my identity. But guess what? You don't get to say who you are. God says who you are. God created you in his image. You don't get to rewrite your identity and say that you are a homosexual or this. But according to the Pope, it's okay. It's not a crime. Do you see what he does? He doesn't outright say homosexuality is not a sin. He says it's not a crime. So what does that mean? Well, he's obviously talking about these very fundamentalist places in Islamic countries where people are getting stoned and killed for being gay, which is terrible. I don't think that should happen in any place at any time. However, big however, it's very clear if you understand everything I've talked to you so far, what the tactic of the snake is. The tactic of the snake is he's he's saying, oh, you know, he's picking on something that's true, but in reality what he's doing, he's softening the blow and getting people to say, oh, no, you see, the Pope is for gay, gay rights, gay marriage, you know, all these different things. He's not going to outright say it, but he's subtly making you comfortable with your sin, which is exactly the goal. Everything the Pope does is about usurping the power of Christ. Let's look at another article. Pope to LGBT Catholics. God is father who does not disown any of his children. Well, I'll tell you what. You can't be a child of God and yet insist that you do things your own way. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve yourself as the master of what is right and wrong and God as the master of what is right and wrong. Now, we all have temptations. We all struggle with lust. We all struggle with various problems. But that doesn't mean that you, you say, you know what, this is who I am, and God, you're just going to have to accept me for who I am. But this is the message that the Pope is giving to his people, which is one over a billion people. If you're gay and lesbian and transgender, God's not going to disown his children. Now, wait a minute. How do you become a child of God? I have a whole, a whole short video on this. You become a child of God not because you were created. We are children of wrath because we fell away from grace. You become a child of God by having a genuine born-again experience, meaning you get regenerated through grace and come to Jesus. You have a genuine relationship with him. That's how you become adopted into the family of God, through Jesus. But if you're running the rat wheel of the church and you're listening to what the Pope says and you're trusting in your own behavior and then you're just identifying as a uh, you know, homosexual or transsexual or lesbian or whatever, and you refuse to, you know, listen to what the Bible says, then you're not a child of God because a child of God comes into adoption through being born again. And when you're born again, you receive a new heart and that new heart screams at you to do things differently, not to be comfortable 
in your sin and to say, this is my identity. But let's keep going. Let's see what the Jesuits have to say. Jesuits and other Catholic leaders voice support for LGBTQ community in new video. What does the Bible think about that? The Bible says, shame on you. That's what it says. Here's another one. Okay, let's talk about evangelism now. And I love these ads that just pop up. Okay. Pope Francis on Wednesday said that trying to convince someone to become a Christian is a pagan activity unworthy of followers of Christ. Gosh, Pope Francis urges Christians not to try to convert non-believers. Man, talk about just great, solid evangelism advice. This is what the Catholic Church believes about evangelism. And of course, when it comes to countries that reject Catholicism, Catholicism, the Pope is always about religious freedom. You should be having religious freedom in that country. But if the country accepts Catholicism, it doesn't, he doesn't fight for religious freedom anymore. You'll notice this politically in, in a variety of different places. He doesn't fight for religious freedom only when Catholicism is not accepted. But when Catholicism is accepted, oh, the church is the mother church. You can only be saved through the church. That's evangelism. So isn't that interesting? Very sneaky way of doing things, if you ask me. Let's look at this other one. Jewish leaders meet Pope Francis, commemorate decree, repudiating idea that Jews killed Jesus. Rabbis present Pope Francis with a Jewish response to the 1965 Nostra Aetate Declaration, recognizing common ground with Catholics while stressing irreconcilable theological differences. So all these rabbis met with Pope Francis, Commemorating the decree, repudiating the, repudiating the idea that Jews killed Jesus. Oh, gosh, what a reprehensible idea that the Jews killed Jesus. How could that? How could you believe such a thing? How could you believe such a thing? But let's see, what does the Bible say about it? John 19, verse 6, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Hmm. Who delivered who delivered Jesus to the Romans? And who said crucify him? It was the Jews. Now, here's the thing. In Leviticus 4, it talks about the sin offering. And if you read Leviticus 4, the person who offered the sin offering for their guilt had to kill the animal themselves. Why? Because God wanted you to know that there is a price for sin, and that price is death. And of course, in this case, you weren't going to die because there was a substitutionary atonement, and Christ fulfilled all the sacrifices by being the ultimate substitutionary atonement. But what is that? What is so important about both the Jews and the Romans killing Jesus, sharing the blame? There was, this was done on purpose because it matched the law. The sin offering had to be killed by the one who was guilty. If the Jews didn't kill Jesus, 
which is not true because they contributed to him and they were part of killing him, then there's no redemption for the Jews. Do you see how that works? According to their law, the, the one who was guilty had to kill the offering. Jesus was the offering. Both the Romans, meaning the Gentiles, and the Jews killed him. That means that both of those parties can be forgiven. That's how it works. And so the Pope pushing this idea and, and going along with these satanic rabbis who are all just Babylonian mystics, that the Jews didn't kill Jesus. No, 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 the Jews didn't kill Jesus. You're basically saying, yeah, 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 you're right. There's no redemption for you. That is an antichrist thing to do. And again, that's just the Catholic Church on evangelism. Now, a couple more red flags. Gosh, there's just so many, aren't there? But let's take a look at them. Pope Paul, uh, what Paul the Fourth audience hall. That's right. Paul the Fourth audience hall looks like a snake. If you've ever seen this audience hall, you have to be blind not to see that it looks like a snake on the inside and on the outside. It looks like a giant snake when you walk in. And you wonder, was this done on purpose? And I think it was, because this is the snake, the dragon. And what is it, the mouth? The mouth contains a throne, a little throne, which we'll look at in a second, where the Pope basically sits and proclaims and decrees things. And there's also this sculpture that we're going to look at that's very interesting, which is called The Resurrection, and it's by a man named Fazzini. And so all of this is at the mouth of the snake in this giant audience hall, and the snake is speaking. And how does he speak? He speaks through his vicar, who is the Pope. Now, this sculpture is called The Resurrection. It's supposed to be the Messiah. is coming, you know, the resurrection. But if you look at this sculpture, I mean, does this look, again, you can look this up, Resurrection by Fazzini in the Paul, the fourth audience hall. Does this look like Jesus? This looks like a ghostly, satanic antichrist emerging from an explosion of destruction, from evil. There's like these souls that are, I mean, it's just satanic. I mean, look at it yourself. And it is crazy to think that this is at the mouth of a snake where the Pope is sitting and speaking. So use discernment. I mean, just use discernment, people, that is... uh it is pretty crazy. Now, we also know the Vatican has a ton of Egyptian and Roman things, like the obelisk. Now located in St. Peter's Square, the Vatican obelisk has brought was brought from Heliopolis during the reign of Caligula and set up on the spina of the Circus of Gaius and Nero in Rome. So this obelisk now has a little cross on it, but this obelisk is old. It's very, very old. It's from Egypt, from Rome. These things are... Pagan symbols. And if you look into obelisks, they're everywhere. There's an obelisk in Washington, D.C. There's an obelisk in the Vatican. These things prove who their allegiance is to. And we know that. Now we know also the Pope has a mitre, the Pope's mitre, which is that fish hat that he wears. A lot of apologists will say, no, no, this is not pagan. But we know that the Philistines and the Babylonians believed in Dagon. Dagon was a fish god and he had this fish head that the priest, the high priest would wear. And we see that in the popes today, that they're wearing these miters that are basically fish heads, which again goes back to the whole Babylonian thing. Remember that the pontifex title was a Babylonian thing. It was transferred over to the Romans when the Chaldeans were finally taken over 
and they surrendered their territory in Pergamum. And then the Romans carried it through, and then the Catholic Church basically became came out of the Roman system, and the Pope adopted that title because it's a continuation, just like Daniel 2 and the statue, where you have the statue of these different empires and medals. It's a continuation of the system that just degrades over time, but it's the same system. Now, what about the upside-down cross? Gosh, there's the whole thing with that, the, the St. Peter's cross, where you have this throne where I don't remember where it's at, but there's definitely tons of pictures of the Pope sitting on one of his thrones where there's this upside-down cross. I mean, it looks satanic. It's just crazy. Anybody with a shred of discernment can see that it's satanic. And of course, they say, oh, it's, you know, St. Peter's cross. You know, it's, it's uh, he got crucified upside down, and this is a Pope. He's the Peter, you know, and so on. But you remember, these people are occultists. They tell you one thing that's on the surface that you believe, and they operate under hidden rules that they believe. To them, the upside-down cross means something else. It's inversion of Christ, everything that Christ does. And it's true from everything we've looked at. Hopefully that's true to you by now. Even crossing yourself. You know, I grew up with that because I was Eastern Orthodox for a little while in my life. And even crossing yourself, if you cross yourself, you're forming an upside-down cross. Because the way at least in the Catholic Church they do it, they go from all the way to the top of the head to the chest plate, which is a line, but then your shoulders, from shoulder to shoulder, intersect that line at a lower spot. It's an upside-down cross if you form it. And so what are you doing when you do that? Are you, are you making St. Peter's cross or are you trying to invert the cross? Now, most people don't even realize that they're doing it, but that's the sign and mark that the beast uses. I'm not saying it's the mark of the beast, but it's a sign, and it's a sign of obedience to this system. They say that it's, you know, representative of Peter, but don't buy that. I don't buy that for one shred of an instant. Of course, there's also the whole thing with the crucifix and the Pope's crucifix showing this emaciated Christ, basically this withered away Christ. You notice that they always keep Christ either on the cross, where he's dead or dying, or as a child with Mary, where he's this, you know, inconsequential figure, just weak, doesn't really have an opinion. It's Mary's the emphasis. Always one of the two. They never show or discuss the king, the risen Christ, the returning conqueror. It's always putting Christ in a position of weakness. So this whole thing with the crucifix and the post-crucifix, this is what they believe and they want. They want to kill Christ every day and keep him dead. But it's not possible because Christ is risen. He was sacrificed once and he's in heaven ruling and he's ruling amongst his enemies. That's why we're in the millennial kingdom. And when he returns, he's going to destroy the system. Resurrection will happen, meaning the last enemy to be destroyed is death and eternity will be ushered in. And praise God for that. I want to look at uh, two more things. One of them is the serpent that kills and the serpent that saves. This is a some kind of uh, meditation. It's from the Vatican by Pope Francis. The serpent that kills and the one that saves. Gosh, this is again another one of those things where you got to have discernment, man. You got to have discernment. This was in 2016. You have to have discernment. Now, this is talking about the serpent. Well, let's just talk about it and we'll, we'll see what's up. The serpent, the pontiff clarified, is a symbol of sin, the serpent that kills. But the serpent that saves, this is the mystery of Christ. Really? St. Paul, Saint Paul, the Pope recalled, also spoke of this mystery. He said, 
that Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself, annihilated himself in order to save us. Moreover, the apostle offers an even stronger expression. He became sin. Thus, using the biblical symbol, we could say, the Bible doesn't say this, but we could say, he became serpent. Hmm. This, Francis said, is the prophetic message of today's readings. The Son of Man, who like a serpent became sin, is lifted up in order to save us. Gosh, it sounds so good and official, but man, this is the most satanic thing just underlying all these things. Let's continue. Therefore, we must look at the crucifix and see this very mystery. A God emptied of his divinity completely in order to save us. Really? Christ was still God and man. He was never emptied of his divinity. He never, he gave up his role in heaven at the time. He gave up his position, but he was still God and man. He was both God and man consistently. However, the Holy Father added, who is this serpent that Jesus takes upon himself in order to defeat it? The answer can be saved in John's apocalypse. The answer can be read in John's apocalypse, where the serpent is mentioned again. Among other things, the Pope pointed out the serpent in the Bible is the first animal to be mentioned, and I think perhaps it is the last. And we read that the ancient serpent, Satan, was defeated. Therefore, sin, Pope Francis stated, is the work of Satan, and Jesus defeats Satan by becoming sin. Thus, from the cross, Jesus lifts up all of us. For this reason, the crucifix is not an ornament. It is not a work of art with many precious stones as are seen. The crucifix is the mystery of God's annihilation, which we, which he did out of love. So this is talking about the crucifix, and of course, there's so much embedded in here. Oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start. First and foremost, yeah, you got to have a crucifix to remind you, of course, this is an idol. Don't have a crucifix in your house. Why? Christ is not on the cross. He was on the cross a long time ago, but that's been done for a very long time. Christ is in heaven ruling. He's in a position of power. He's not on a cross dying. So you shouldn't have that lying around the house. I have one from Bethlehem that I had since I was a kid. And whatever, I keep it in a drawer. I don't hang it up. It was a gift. It was a rare thing. It's from Bethlehem. It reminds me of Bethlehem, which is where Jesus was born. But ultimately, I don't look at it. I don't keep it up. And I don't think we should have crucifixes because Jesus is not on the cross. And it, it leads to like a form of idolatry, really, because you're you're looking at this object that's supposed to represent God. And really, God is not to be contained in any object. But the point, the greater point of this homily or whatever he's doing here, he's talking about the bronze serpent in the Old Testament, where, if you recall, Moses, God sent these serpents among people to bite them and kill them for their disobedience. And he told Moses to create a bronze serpent and put it on a staff and lift it up. And if you looked at the serpent, then, you know, you'd be saved from the bite. You'd be, you'd be healed. And that was a picture for Christ, of course. What was the picture for Christ? That, that Christ would be lifted up on a cross. That he became sin who knew no sin. Which, of course, again, they quote scripture in this. Very clever. He became sin who knew no sin. And he, be, he was lifted up for our sake. And that's all true. But the language here, if you understand the occult, if you understand what these people actually believe, who they believe is their savior and what they want and what they're doing and all the things we're going to be talking about in future episodes. They believe that Lucifer is their savior. And if Lucifer will masquerade as the son of God, this is the direction they're putting everything in. 
when they said, oh, that Christ became like a serpent or became the serpent, no, he, the Bible never says that. Never says that Christ became the serpent. It says that he became sin who knew no sin. But they're reading into it and changing and playing with words to make you associate something very dangerous. Because in the occult world, Satan is the master of duality. He's dark and light. You have Satan as the dark side and then Lucifer as the light bearer. The evil of the dark is to make you go to the light. The evil of Satan is to make you be wanted to be rescued by Satan, which is a total, it's total stupidness. It's total madness, really. But this is the world that they live in. And if you understand that, then reading through this homily and what this Pope Francis is saying has a whole different language. And reading through it with the knowledge that all these propagandas and things that are leading people into worshiping the beast again, like Passion of the Christ, which we'll talk about. There's so much occult stuff in the Passion of the Christ. I had no idea. I thought it was a great movie, but then I looked into it and it, never again, never watching it again, unfortunately. Unfortunately, because again, when you first watch it and you don't, or you're not aware of these things and your heart is true to Christ, you, you weep for the pain that he went through. But there's so many occult things and, and subliminal programming in that movie that once you become aware of them, you cannot endorse it anymore. And so I'll be covering that in a future episode. But the point is this. The serpent that kills and the serpent, the serpent isn't saving anybody. Christ saves. So you see what they're doing? This is their occult ideology, all hidden behind a Christian package. That Satan, who's the dark one, is going to kill you and hurt you, but then Lucifer is going to come in and and save you and bring you the light. Because that's what they do, dark to light. They use the dialectics of the two sides to push you towards the end solution, which is trying to recognize the devil as God, which will happen. But hopefully now you realize and will not be playing along. The last two things I want to talk about is the Pope's necklace. He has a necklace of this cross, and it's a symbol of supposedly Peter or somebody that's been given the keys to bind and loose on heaven and earth. But it's a very weird and occult symbol because first and foremost, the person on the cross is having his hands tied in or crossed in like an X, and he's basically holding the keys. It's just a very strange symbol. And the why, this, why the Pope would wear such a symbol is, is really... Strange, because first and foremost, we know from Revelation 1, verses uh, 17 through 18, that Christ is the one that has the keys to life and death. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So he's Christ is the one that has the keys. He's the one that has the keys of life and death. He's the one that has the keys to everything. And we know from the Egyptians, from the occult, Osiris was worshipped as the god with the keys. And he was pictured in the same way, with a crossing of the hands and with these two keys. And so, really what's going on here is, again, a testament that the Pope is God on earth, that he's the one that has the keys to life and death. That's, again, everything is exoteric and esoteric. What they tell you on the surface is exoteric. What they tell you, what they don't tell you, which you have to be initiated into, is esoteric knowledge. This is why these secret societies have so many layers. 
On the surface, the Freemasons are this charitable organization. But once you make it to the 33rd degree, you realize that the god that they worship is Lucifer. And we'll look at that with the Shriners. We looked a little bit at that in the past, but we'll look at that in the future as well. All the political parties who are Shriners, they put an oath to Allah. Who is Allah? You're going to find out in a future episode we'll do on Islam. But that's pretty much it. Final thoughts. This has been a doozy. This has been a doozy. I hope if you're still here, man, I congratulate you because ultimately this information needs to get out, but not too many people will be. We'll, we'll have the interest and the endurance to go through it, but I commend you if you're still here. I appreciate you. Remember this. Cain worshiped God in his own way. Cain believed in God, but he wanted to worship God in his own way. He did it through his own way and his own method, his own way of sacrificing, and God rejected him. And we know that Cain led to all the rebellious people and the sons of Cain and the disobedient ones. And that's who is in control of the earth today. There's no power on earth and in history that even comes close to fulfilling Daniel and Revelation like the Catholic Church does and the papacy. That's why she's called Mother of Harlots and Abomination of the Earth. And of course, by now you should realize why. The papacy during the Reformation was created or I should say created futurism to combat the Reformation because all the reformers identified the papacy as the Antichrist power. And so futurism and dispensationalism, this whole idea of a future Antichrist, the literal future temple, all these things that are fleshly, literal ways designed to obscure who the power is. All these things were created. And most people today believe these things, unfortunately. We know the Jesuits created the dialectics of left versus right, in 1798, when they gave the mortal wound to the beast through the French Revolution, but that was all designed to bring the world back to the beast through dialectics. They had to change their tactics, so they created dialectics so that there would be this ping pong, left and right, left and right, left and right, going up the Kabbalah tree until you get to the capstone. That's what these people believe in. Both sides are the same, they're one snake, two heads. Both of the heads serve the same purpose. They seem like they're fighting. Remember the art of war, but they are actually doing the same thing. The final system that John saw was a woman riding the beast, which is a church-state union, as it was before, invigorated with power, and the the kings of the earth will give her their power. For a short time, it's not going to be 1260 years again. It's going to be a short, much shorter time, but it is going to be a period of time, and we are heading in that direction. Now, how we're going to get there, if supposedly America separates church and state and Europe seems very secular and atheistic. How are we going to do that? Well, there's an answer to that too. And the reality is that the momentum is already happening. It's already happening. There are so many tangents and threads being interwoven. Remember the art of war. The sovereign's prime duty and pleasure is the divine manipulation of the threads. Isn't that interesting? All this stuff is fascinating to me. But ultimately, look, We're moving in that direction, whether you like it or not, whether this is the first time you've heard it or not. And if it is the first time, then I encourage you to stay with me in the next coming weeks because we're going to get into it very deeply to show you exactly why the world will come back to a church-state union where the Pope and the papacy and possibly even a false Christ is at the helm. And so if that's the case, then we know why there will be so much persecution and why there will be a mark of the beast that people will gladly take because they're going to be deceived. 
And so I hope you're not going to be deceived. That's why I created this series, because this information needs to get out there. So stay tuned. Hope it's been a blessing. Share with family and friends. I know this is long, but you know maybe they can watch it in parts. Ultimately, I want you to not be deceived, because today we live in a very crazy time. So until next time, stay healthy, have a good one, and God bless.